Mental manipulation, you don't need special powers for. <laughs> Sorry, man, you went out on me there for a minute. I don't know what's going on. I'm kind of going in and out a little bit. No, I purposely paused there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think of a funny way to say that. Mental manipulation, you don't need special powers for. Just ask some of my ex-girlfriends. <laughs> You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Ghost 81 discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on rfgeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter. This month, we have a very special edition of the music segment of the show, known to regular listeners as the Concert Cast. Being that there aren't any concerts going on due to the global pandemic, we had a conversation with indie musician Marissa DeBeese to discuss how she is surviving after her band's tour was cut short due to nationwide shelter-in-place orders. Marissa is also a gamer, so we had to chew the fat about some of her old favorites as well as what she is currently playing. Our game of the month for the main discussion is Remedy Entertainment's 2019 sci-fi shooter, Control. Rich and I almost lost control of our tempers trying to finish this game, as anyone who follows us on Twitter could have witnessed, but that doesn't mean we won't give you the same deep analysis you know and love as we take the plunge into the game's impenetrable lore and complex systems. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at rfgplaycast, and Rich is at the single banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to rfgeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast.
So, Rich, sometimes we don't know exactly what the very first topic should be when we start a show, but this time I'm definitely clear. And I don't want to be too presumptuous, but I imagine that we'll have a few new listeners due to our special guest interview that we did. So if Marissa sent you and this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. I'm Sean. I go by GreyGhost81. My co-host is Rich. He goes by Single Banana or The Single Banana. What we do here is basically a game of the month playthrough on rfgeneration.com where we have a sub forum. We pick a game and we just play it together and talk about it with each other. Uh, it's free to create an account on RF Generation and we'd love to have you come aboard or just follow me at RFG Playcast on Twitter. And I tend to tweet about the games there, as does Rich. He's at The Single Banana on Twitter. So if it's your first time listening, welcome, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in. So Rich, how you doing? Doing pretty good. This is our second recording, right? Since COVID-19? Yeah. Now, <laughs> I think we went pretty deep into the weeds in our previous episode, and uh, I hope we're starting to see light at the end of the tunnel. I don't even want to like date the show based on events that are going on, but I was thinking about this the other day, and the way I put it to myself is, I don't know if COVID has peaked, but I think my fear of it has peaked, and that doesn't mean I've changed my behavior in any way. I'm still like super strict with myself on PPE and sanitation and all that stuff and stay at home, but for whatever reason, I'm not like scared to death of actually contracting the disease, which I was at a certain point, so sure. that's done a lot for my mental stability lately and i hope it's a sign of bigger things to come i know there's still issues there's still tons of things going on but i hope maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel coming soon yeah i hope so too one of the scarier things for me though is we're opening up businesses again starting tomorrow actually yeah same here so uh, that's a little scary in terms of being around crowds of people. But with the phase one is what it's called. Stores are still responsible for no more than 10 people. This doesn't apply to like grocery stores and things like that. But they are really trying to restrict the number of people that can go in smaller businesses at one time and uh, making sure that these businesses have adequate PPE and also hand sanitizer and things like that. So it's a good thing. I'm really, really happy for these small businesses. I know that they're struggling right now, but it's still uh, kind of crazy times. We've uh, actually been supporting the food truck industry in my neighborhood. We bring in two food trucks every week to try to help support them. And I've spoken to the vendors and they've made some really good money doing this. And usually they charge an upfront fee to bring the trucks in so that, you know, they ensure that they make enough money, but they're not even doing that now. They're just trying to make what they can make. But I feel like we've done a really good job of at least supporting that small business community. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. You got to be creative in the ways that you Think outside the box and how you can support. And I'm still doing a lot of delivery services and just tipping through the nose as best I can to support those people who are, you know, doing that hard work. Well, speaking of things that carried over from the last show, let's talk about things our old friends pointed out. What do you got, Sean? Anything this month? I don't have anything except for that. It kind of stinks. I'm still playing Fable 2 because I really wanted to know if there was a cap on the gold that you can get. And 
sure, I could just search this, but I have such a bankroll in this game and I, I like just <laughs> firing it up and seeing half a million gold float over my head when I log into the game. So I got to 9.8 million and I was wondering if there was like a 10 million cap, but I'm not quite there yet. So I'll have to check in maybe next month because I still have the game on my hard drive and I'm still <laughs> popping in from time to time. Well, I'm sure the world is curious about that 10 million cap. So please be sure to check in next month about that. I will. Well, normally this part of the show, we go into our concert cast, which typically Sean and I talk about shows that we've gone to or tickets we've picked up for potential shows. But as you know, with COVID-19 going around, shows have been canceled. We've actually lost money on tickets. So We've gone through the process of recommending albums for people to listen to, but this show, we actually were able to get someone from the music community to appear as a special guest, and I'll get Sean to tell you about that. Yeah, so there's this band, Manic and that I've talked about many, many times on the show. I call them my favorite active band because... You know, I qualify it with the active because I don't know who my all-time favorite band is. But right now, they're my favorite band. And man, I just took a total YOLO shot in the dark and messaged Marissa DeBeach. She's the lead singer, front woman of the band, and asked her to come on our show to talk about the music industry. And I also know that she plays video games, so I thought she would be a really good fit to have a chat with us. I won't belabor the point that she was very kind and warm and friendly and so nice to us because you'll hear the interview and it's very apparent that's what happened. But I want to just quickly thank her for some things specifically, and that is that she was very professional in her messaging. I sent her the original message soliciting her to come on the show. I'm a complete stranger. She doesn't owe me anything. And I've got to be honest, I was 99.9% .9 sure I wouldn't get a reply at all, which would have been fine. And she responded very politely and almost excited, like, hey, that sounds like a lot of fun. When do you record? <laughs> and yeah. I ran around my job saying, she said yes, she said yes, like <laughs> as if I had proposed to somebody or something. So it was really awesome. And uh, she was just really professional in her reaction time to messages, which is an underrated trait of somebody that you're trying to collaborate with. She also went way over time. We told her we would record for about 30 minutes and we went over an hour and she was very polite about that. And gee, imagine us going long. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we should have known better, but she was very accommodating. Also, she recorded her own track, which if you don't do a podcast, you may not know this, but it's not really the norm to do that. And the only reason I know that is because, Rich, you and I have guested on other people's podcasts and they usually record the Skype call, which is not better or worse. It's just a different way that people do podcasts. The way we like to do it is we each record our own track and then we send it to you, Rich, to edit the show together. We asked her to do that and she didn't balk. She didn't bat an eye. Sure, I'll record my own track. She did it. That was great. And she also sent her track to you within a couple minutes of us ending the recording, so we didn't have to hound her for it. So just an A-plus superstar <laughs> kind of guest. Yeah, awesome guest. Um, again, the interview speaks for itself. There's one more just caveat about the interview is that 
you know, Marissa, as well as us, we're very big on free speech. I'm a free speech absolutist. And she, as you'll see, is as well. We just asked her to speak as freely as she wanted to. But we let her know that this is, you know, I called it a family show. But you know what I mean? It's PG rated, let's say. You'll hear it's kind of, I don't want to use the word censored, but it's kind of like house rules. We don't swear here. We don't use explicit tags. So it's just the format of the show. It has nothing to do with the content of what she was saying or what we were saying. And Rich, I got to be honest with you. I think you and I cursed more than usual because we were (laughs) maybe subconsciously trying to make her feel more comfortable. I don't know. But I noticed that when I listened back to it. Yeah. Well, I think it's that and the fact that we felt so comfortable talking to her as well. Yeah, true. So anyway, without any further ado, here's our interview with Marissa DeBeese. Listeners of the show already know that Mannequin Pussy is my favorite active band. I have seen them live three times and was set for a fourth, which would have made them the first band I ever saw four times, but that show was rescheduled due to COVID, sadly, without Mannequin Pussy. The band's 2019 album Patience made my list of albums of the decade in sidecast number three from January 6th of this year and was also awarded my top album of 2019 in my list published on the blog on rfgeneration.com on January 20th. As of recent, the concert cast segment of our show isn't what it used to be, so I concocted a plan to get a very, very special guest onto the show, and we have with us the lead singer, guitarist, songwriter, front woman of Mannequin Pussy, Marissa DeBeast, Marissa, welcome to the show. Hello, hi. Thanks for having me. I did not know about the uh, the amount of accolades that you had personally <laughs> bestowed us, so thank you. Yeah, no problem. I'll send you some links to my lists or <laughs> the uh, the special side cast that we did of the albums of the decade. 
So as I stated, Marissa, we usually do a segment of our show called the Concert Cast, which kind of bloomed out of the fact that Rich and I really just love going to see live music. I live in Austin, and Rich lives in South Carolina between two major cities. So. Hey, North Carolina, man. Sorry, uh, North Carolina. <laughs> are you guys friends, really? Yeah. We, <laughs> we are friends. We've actually met once. We've met in, in real life as well. So we have this segment where we talk about shows. Well, last month was the first show where the impact of the COVID situation and everybody's tours getting canceled really hit home. It was just a really sad segment. So one of the reasons I got the idea to ask you on was to talk about the music business and how your life as an indie musician has been affected Rich actually was interested because as much as I'm a, a huge longtime fan of yours, Rich is kind of a newcomer to the band. So he had some kind of basic questions. Rich, if you wanted to just get some of that nuts and bolts stuff about the band out of the way. Yeah. Um, so I understand that you guys are from Philadelphia. I've been to the state of Pennsylvania one time and it was actually to play in a pinball tournament, believe it or not. I'm a big pinball guy. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my uh, my sweetheart, who I live with, uh, also participates in many pinball tournaments. Awesome. Here, so... Oh, my goodness. I, I'm on the... <laughs> like, we have a pinball machine in our house kind of thing. Which one Holy do you have? Shit, I have to know. A uh, high speed. Oh, that's such a good one. 1986, I believe. Yeah, great pin. Yeah, it's a, it's got some really cool artwork on it, and like the the police siren up on top. So I'm I'm not like a a huge pinhead myself, but uh, I appreciate the enthusiasm. So, <laughs> well, be careful. They're like Pringles chips. You get one, you get more. I've I've got twelve <laughs> now. So uh, oh, yeah. Sh- okay. Yeah. <laughs> As Sean mentioned, I live in North Carolina. I actually live between uh, Charlotte and Raleigh. You guys were actually playing at the Cat's Cradle in Carborough, which is near Chapel Hill, which is my favorite venue in the area. And I went to that place a lot. But, of course, uh, I saw that that show got canceled. I was really sad about that because uh, I, I really, really love the new album. For our listeners, that album is Patience, which was released last year. And uh, I was just kind of curious, why did you name the album Patience? Uh, it just took us a very long time to get made. And so, you know, it's like a simple answer to to that question that I've been asked before. It, it really was like just this this word that kept popping up. We were dealing with a lot of things as a band um, privately and then also like somewhat publicly with, with going on to a new label and re-recording mm-hmm. our album and just everything we were dealing with. Anytime we would talk to our friends or family about it, they would just always be like, well, you know, you got to have patience. And I, I grew to I grew to like really resent that word uh, because I'm a very impatient person. And when I want to do something, I, I really want to do it on my timeline. But that whole experience of what it what it meant and felt like to make that record, I don't know. It, it really did. It gave me like this new understanding of how I should move through the world, and that it does take time and patience to manifest the things that you you want to create. So. So basically, I hate this fucking word, now I'm going to name my album that, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, What's your favorite song off of the album? I'm just curious. I've been playing this album a lot, and I definitely have my favorites. I'm just curious, which is yours? 
Uh, I think right now it's probably In Love Again, the last track on the album. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that sample. I it's too. hypnotic. Yeah. I, I just love that song. I, I think it's like one of the most collaborative writing experiences that the, the four of us have ever had. Um, and I just am so in love with what Kayleen did with her percussion odyssey at the end of it. And there's like a lot of magical moments in it that like when we were recording that song that really made me fall in love with my bandmates and, and just the whole process of, of creating something. So, uh, yeah, that, that song is very special to me. Yeah, it's a very good one to end with. It's very soothing. And another song that's sort of in the same vein that is uh, Who You Are. I, I love that line, I didn't choose my life, why would I choose my death? Sean knows I'm, I'm really into lyrics, and uh, I just, I love that song. And uh, really, really dig that line. Thank you. Yeah, that, that was the song I used in the albums of the decade show that we did. That's also my, maybe my favorite Mannequin Party song. I also love the lyrics. They really hit home. So I realize you're spending a lot of time now. Uh, do you have a roommate or someone to spend your time with at least? You're not, you're not alone during this thing, are you? I'm not, no. Uh, I, I live with my lover. So it's the two of us in his house. I was kind of like just staying here in between tours. Like I, I had my own apartment and then I was subletting it because I've just been on tour for pretty much like the last seven months um, with like very small stints at home. Uh, so now we're we are cohabitating with the pinball machine. Yeah, with the pinball machine, we have like <laughs> you know we have a PS4, we have a Switch, we have an Xbox. As far as you know, safety and comfortability goes, I, I'm I'm very lucky right now to to be where I am. Yeah, and that's really a cool reason to have you on the show is because Sean and I we're big gamers, but at the same time, but like you said before, we really love music. So it just kind of intertwines nicely. So uh really appreciate you coming on. Oh yeah. This is, it's a nice break in my day to, to talk to some other people. So. <laughs> All right. So like I said, one of the things that I envisioned for bringing you on here, Marissa, was to talk about how COVID has uh, affected you as an indie musician. And I wanted to kind of start off by asking, because most people don't understand what life is like and what it's like to earn a living more specifically as an indie musician. So if you could explain how you make a living before the COVID outbreak, like what was normal life? I know you're touring relentlessly, but we kind of want to know as well, like how do album sales merch sales, streaming, how does all that stuff play in to just how you live and are able to support yourself? Um, I would say that speaking for myself and probably uh, most other indie artists, um, 99% of my income comes from live performances. It's pretty much been everything for us for the last eight months. And I think we're in this weird position where we're a band who kind of recently just made this our full-time careers. It's probably been about a year of like full-time touring and this is where all my income is coming from. So it was like we got, we got the taste of it and it was a great taste to be like, wow, my, I'm supporting myself based on 
this music that we've created and now watching it all crumble uh is is alarming and yeah it's frightening and it's stressful um yeah i, I think musicians are we're both so i don't know we're essentially non-essential i think we we play such a big role in in people's lives as the soundtrack to their lives and this emotional thing that that people really connect to and and live show experiences I, I think are also a huge part of so many people's lives so just seeing the impact of it and pre-covid like how much of seeing a bump in your success and turning you know your art into hey let's make a living out of this how much did signing to Epitaph have to do with that? You know, Epitaph is like this legendary punk rock label. They're kind of like a, what you would call a major indie label, even though they're not a major label, yes. like a major minor label. They're an independent label, yeah. Was that tied to you signing with them or was it just the success of the album itself? Like, did you get support from them? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a lot of different things. I, I think definitely signing to Epitaph changed our lives financially in the way that we now have the the support of a label who is able to kind of like deliver what they they say they're going to. You mm-hmm. know, I I think a lot of artists are used to being lied to all the time as to like what someone wants to do for them, and Epitaph is someone who really. I think deeply cares about art and artistry and kind of continuing and reinventing punk traditions. You know, working with Epitaph was the first time that we had an advance where we didn't have to put our personal money into making a record. We didn't have to be working our side jobs and putting together again, like our own money to, to rent a van or to get merch. It, It was, it was enough to realize the visions that we had. Um, So I think that, you know, is a a really important part of where we've been able to get to. And also, I think in the the post-COVID light, Epitaph has been doing a lot as well in terms of like redirecting all like Bandcamp digital sales 100% to the artists, like not just on the one day that Bandcamp did it, but just like going forward now, any time... Uh, a fan buys a an epitaph album off of Bandcamp. All that money is going directly to the artists instead of you know being used to offset our advances or into Epitaph's pocket. So they're looking for ways to continue to support us while things change. But I mean, it's it's also very exciting to be a part of a record label that has so much history to it. But I guess at the same time too, like I see the the label artist relationship as something that's very symbiotic. Like you cannot rely completely on your label for your success. I think your success is very dependent on how hard you are willing to work as an artist and how mu- how many sacrifices you're you're kind of willing to make. Touring is is a huge sacrifice in many different ways, but it is something that can give you a career. I feel really lucky that our album came out when it did in 2019 and we were able to have a solid seven months of active touring. And I went into that record cycle at my absolute brokest. I mean, when Patience came out, I think I probably had like a couple hundred dollars to my name. And I just, I had put everything into this and 
couldn't have like a normal job because of touring and just it, it still took a lot and then now for the first time just because of all that touring and and sacrifice I have like savings for the first time in in years so I, th- I think Epitaph has has had to do quite a bit with that you know helping us to to kind of get to the next step and and get our music to people who may have never heard of us before awesome well since you mentioned that you had a little bit of a savings saved up let's transition into the covid situation because that's what i want to kind of flip to because now i am observing you via social media doing all these awesome things like filling huge amounts of merch orders and also doing guitar tutorials which I think is amazing, by the way. I've only caught one, but I got to say, when I saw the tutorial for Patience, the song Patience that you did the other night, and it really took the edge off how nervous I was to talk to you because you just seemed very sweet and kind and nice to the people who were, you were just showing them how to play your song on guitar, which was amazing. I was wondering, actually, do you have any background in teaching? Because you seem very natural at it. I don't know. I've never I've never taught before. Okay. Well, you might, you <laughs> might have a a new calling uh, while you're, you know, as you continue to do this. So you're stuck at home, as you said, with your significant other, just trying to stay normal in this new normal kind of thing. So how much of it is sustaining yourself financially, filling merch orders? I know I know you can't make money doing free guitar tutorials, but you also tweeted. A, couple days ago about maybe starting a patreon like we don't know how long this whole thing is going to last could be months i mean god forbid it's longer than years or whatever but how are you sustaining yourself Uh, right now the merch orders that are coming through are the only thing that is financially sustaining myself and my bandmates um we are extraordinarily lucky with the kind of community that's come out of the I like to call it now like the pussy army because I think that's a fun <laughs> way to, to call our bandmates. But or like our, I think we're proud members of that. Yeah, you're proud members of the pussy army and we're happy to have you. Uh, I, yeah, like as of today, I, I just got back into filling orders and I just filled order 700. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, and that's just like, I think that's just a testament to how wonderful a music community can be and how supportive it can be. Because we are, we're in a weird spot uh, where touring takes an enormous amount of upfront investment. And so on the Best Coast tour that we were on, we were two weeks in. And the first two weeks of a tour is usually when you are still paying off all your debts. So I think we had amassed maybe like $20,000 in debt going into that tour. Okay. Um, and that would have been like on plane tickets and van expenses and uh, hotel expenses and uh, merch expenses that you, you pay for up front. So we had just broken even the day that the tour got canceled. So for the rest of the tour should have been profit for us. We had just paid off. So it was kind of lucky because had the tour been canceled any sooner, we would have been struggling to pay off, you know, the, those debts. Um, I'm kind of like losing my way here because I'm like, oh, God, it feels so long ago now. But it was really just about a month or more. But I, yeah, right now it's like we can't we can't get unemployment because we're business owners. It's highly unlikely that we're going to get a PPP loan 
so the only thing right now that we have kind of sustaining us financially is is fan support. And we've been extraordinarily lucky for the the amount of support that people have shown to us in in the last month. That's awesome. And I didn't realize that you would go into debt to start a tour. And that makes me think the bands who didn't even start their tours, they might be in the hole. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sad. I mean, this this was like a bigger tour with like, you know, much bigger rooms, like 1500 cap rooms. So so the expenses are always higher, the bigger the tour. But I I think that's something that's been on my mind a lot. Like when I talked about the timing and, and how fortunate our band was that our album came out when it did. And, you know, when I mentioned my weak bank account right before Patience came out is a lot of musicians, again, they're at their brokest right before a record comes out. You hope that that maybe maybe your touring will will reinvigorate that <laughs> that in your in your bank account and and help you find some stability. But it, it's a very unstable life. It's it's a gamble. So like a lot a lot of the sadness I feel is for like a lot of my friends who had just put out albums and now are not able to go out and get that livelihood and and have those live experiences. Yeah. Can you explain, there's something you tweeted about that I could have easily searched myself, but I wanted the opportunity to just ask you what it is. Um, Can you explain what a radius clause is? Yes. Uh, So a radius clause is when you play in a city, uh, usually, you know, at this point, we're not we're not talking DIY basement shows. We're talking any sort of venue that a band might play in. If I have a performance in New York City, What the promoter of that venue is going to do now is make your band sign a radius clause where you agree not to play anywhere from 30 to 90 days before that date and 30 to 90 days after that date. So a radius clause blocks out your ability to perform in that city due to, you know, what the music industry calls like an oversaturation of the market. In the case of Best Coast, where we were going to go, we couldn't do those makeup Best Coast tours dates because we had our own tour booked for October and November. We wouldn't be able to play in any of those cities with Best Coast because we were coming back to all those same cities a month later. Wow. That's something that I think maybe a lot of people don't know about. Like, I'm not an expert, but I'd never heard of such a thing. That's crazy. Anytime you've ever seen a tour poster where it says special guest, it's not that it's actually a secret. It just means that that artist has a radius clause that they're waiting to expire so that they can be announced on the show. That's what special guest means. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It means that the show's booked, but they have to wait for this other contractual issue to expire and then they can be announced. Have there been any talks about maybe dropping some of these clauses due to what's going on right now? Mm, No, no, no. I, I don't think we're there yet. Every band I know has rescheduled for the fall, mm-hmm. and everyone's just waiting to see if that's even a possibility. Yeah. So you talked about fulfilling your merch orders. What are some other ways that fans can support bands? Does streaming help at all? And I'm wondering specifically. <laughs> I no. just had this thought. Like, <laughs> no, so it doesn't, doesn't right? No, okay. So explain that, like explain Spotify to people from your perspective. Explain Spotify from my perspective. I think think Spotify is a a very interesting tool in our current musical climate. Um, When tools are used correctly, they can 
help artists to reach the ears of people who might not already know that they exist. I think what Spotify does well is by way of like using those algorithms to push artists to people who probably would like you if they could just know that you exist. And so like through recommended artists and your daily mixes and those playlists that they create, I've had a lot of people who have messaged us that's like, you showed up on my Spotify daily mix and now I'm obsessed. So in some ways, it's like, I'm grateful to that strange algorithmic work that Spotify does. On the other hand, Spotify does not pay artists money in a way that could be possibly sustainable. The figure I saw was that it would take it takes a million plays of a song to make about $3,500. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think I've seen statistics similar to that. So that's not a big part of your portfolio. And if people wanted to support you playing your music on a loop on their work computer, wouldn't help. They should just buy it off Bandcamp. Yeah, you should just buy it off Bandcamp. But I, I think, unfortunately, like what we're seeing now is pretty much like all the cracks that are like society-wide in terms of like what is not working are all like under a magnifying glass now and I think especially in music it's obscenely obvious that the only way that artists are able to sustain their livelihoods is through touring it's the most direct way of support and engagement and it's a financial investment really between like fan and performer that that people are are willing to like pay tickets and come buy merch and spend time at at your shows but yeah there's just not really a lot of avenues where your money is going directly to the artist again like I I think Spotify is is fine I, I think every every band wants the support of Spotify because it is kind of like a popularity contest and you basically mm. have like PR people who work on getting a band's picture on the cover of a playlist or like you have PR people who who pitch bands to be on those playlists. So Spotify just holds a lot of power and I think for a lot of artists that's it's a bit unsettling as to how much power they do hold. It's kind of a system that that seeks to serve musicians who are already extraordinarily popular. Okay. I appreciate that rundown there. So to wrap up the COVID stuff before we get into a video game uh, conversation, I want to look into the future and when bands are able to go out, we're able to have public gatherings again and go to shows and me and Rich can come and see Mannequin Pussy live in our respective cities. Do you have any trepidations or reservations about going back on the road And I'll just throw in there that I, as a concert goer, have some trepidations. And I wonder, like, will I go to a club wearing a mask and safety glasses? And like, how are they going to check my ID kind of thing? Like, there's so many logistical issues with just going to a show. And I just wondered, what were your thoughts on that? And did you have any concerns or anything else about when life goes back to sort of normal? Oh, I don't know. Sean and Rich, I don't know. I really, <laughs> really wish I knew. Like, we have this awesome tour booked for the fall. Like, we're bringing like two of our favorite bands. Like, it, nothing's been announced yet, but like, this has been in the work for months before COVID. And 
I just don't know what's going to happen. I can't say for sure, but in terms of like trepidation, yeah, I mean, of course, like I I worry about the safety of of everyone. You know, I I've, I'm always been someone who believes that the show experience should be this safe and kind of out of body experience where like you are really able to to cathartic re- release and and party and just feel good because so much about what we walk through in our normal lives is kind of designed to make us feel awful mm-hmm. all the time or or to feel depressed and down and and I really do think that live shows have this this communal ability to bring a bunch of different people together and have that same release um, and that's something that I love so much about our fans is that they're all very different. Like I don't ever look out into the audience and I'm like, it's just the same kind of person everywhere. That's it's all over the map and it's just very cool. But I, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like what I said earlier, where like music is essentially non-essential. I think that in terms of what comes back, live performances are probably going to be one of the last things that comes back i can't envision a a world where where like you can't go to the movies but you could go to a club show you know right i don't know i I really i hope i hope that there's a way to do it and i mean i was talking to a friend of mine who's a, a much more popular artist than i am and you know even her as an indie band she her band is now playing like a thousand cap rooms and we were talking about how those size shows are probably not going to come back for, I mean, who knows how long, but like maybe a year if like current trends continue. Um, but like for us, we're playing club shows anywhere from 300 to 1200 cap rooms. So it's like, well, maybe shows of 500 people or under could come back. But still, I mean, a show is is people shoulder to shoulder. There's no six feet at a concert. Right, right. So I, I think it's just, it's going to take time. I, I think seeing what happens this summer is, is going to play a lot into it as well. Let's transition into video game talk because one of the things that makes you, I guess, special as far as 
artists that I like is that you're very outward about your fandom of video games. So we were wondering, like, what got you into video games? Have you been playing them since you were younger? Or is it something you discovered as an adult? Like, what's your history there? I did play them when I was younger. Uh, My dad got a Nintendo and I kind of feel like he got it for himself. <laughs> like, you know, like he obviously he had two daughters, but he, there's a game on Nintendo called like Kid Icarus or something like that. Uh, and it it was sort of like Donkey Kong, but you would you just climbed climbed vertically throughout yeah. this thing, and you'd have to like beat monsters and stuff. And it was this really fun game that my dad and I would play together. Um, and then. I had like Donkey Kong on that and, and Mario, but yeah, my, my dad would play and like, then we would, we would like hand off the controller together. Uh, my dad was like, not a guy who was very into sports. He was like more into like the weather channel and fantasy sci-fi shows and video games. And so I think a lot of, of his interests, like were really imparted into me where I, I have like such a distaste for sports, but like, I love all the, the like nerdy like take me out of this world so what you're saying is you had an awesome dad yes i had an i had i have an awesome dad he's he's very cool that's good because uh that sounds a lot like me and uh yeah i hope my kids feel the same way about me someday (laughs) (laughs) i will say my parents my parents chose pretty badly though because once like obviously video games evolved from the super nintendo and nintendo games my parents made the choice to get a, a dreamcast wow instead of PS4. So I had a Dreamcast, which pretty quickly became obsolete. So I had like a few games on that. I had like Crazy Taxi and Shenmue, which was my first introduction, I think, to RPG yeah. games. Um, which it's like, have either of you ever played Shenmue? Yes, I have. It is like extraordinarily boring. <laughs> yeah. It was just remade also. <laughs> Mundane, but like, uh, but I was like obsessed with it. I just loved how oh my God, you just like go around, walking around, talking to people. And then like the highlight of the game is you're driving a forklift. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have you played any of the Yakuza games on PS4? I haven't, no. Okay, so I've said this before and many people have said this before. The Yakuza games are what Shenmue wishes it was. It's a running around the city, only you do fun stuff instead of driving a forklift. So. <laughs> Um, I would highly recommend that. I'll check. I mean, I really wanted to play Shenmue 2, but by the time it came out, Dreamcast was dead. So, like, I was never able to, like, finish the story, but I know that they have it out now, so, like, maybe I will. (laughs) Yeah. Now you can play the whole trilogy, which, from what I understand, still ends on a cliffhanger and is not, like, a complete story. (laughs) Joy. (laughs) And I just want to mention before I forget... We've been doing the show for over five years now, and uh, we're a part of a community, and we play a game, and we used to play more than one game each month, but we have actually done Kid Icarus and had a competition on Crazy Taxi one December, so you'll have to check those shows out, Marissa. Oh, no way. Yes, I have to. (laughs) I love those games. Oh, my God. They have such a special place in my heart. And then I really, I didn't really get into, I, I kind of like dropped off with video games. Uh, and then I got really into World of Warcraft for like two years. Oh, preach. Preach. <laughs> yeah. And then that, that was like a time suck in my life. And then 
I quit once they bumped it up to level 80. Yeah, me too. I had like just gotten to level 60 and I was like, <laughs> nah, I'm, I'm done. Like, All right, I got to know, Horde or Alliance in what class? Oh, I was race. so boring. I was so boring. I was an Alliance human. Okay. How shitty is that? <laughs> like no, no imagination. I mean, I, I had like a, a night elf character as well, but yeah, yeah. like my first inclination was like, I want to look like me. But I was, uh, I was a mage, so like I've, I've always been, been very into like any sort of like fire, fire mage. That was my, my specialty. Yeah, I had an undead mage at one time. I love playing mage; such a fun class. Yeah, that was like the highlight of my. Late teens. <laughs> That's awesome. And then actually around the same time I quit is like when I started playing guitar and started the band. So I, I think I just kind of like started putting my energy into something <laughs> into something else. <laughs> yeah, probably a wise decision, at least. Yeah. <laughs> I had a kid. That's what made me stop. So <laughs> I had to put my energy into that. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, wait a minute. This is like a whole different kind of video game now. Like, keep you alive. <laughs> right. And a never-ending one. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, a, a few years ago, I, I realized, like, oh, I'm an adult. Like, I could buy PS4. And then I, I didn't buy it, but, like, a, an ex bought it for me for Christmas. And then we started playing, like, Skyrim together. And then, yeah, I got, like, really into, like, Skyrim and Stardew Valley. And right now I'm playing Zelda Breath of the Wild nice. yeah. on a Switch. So, so yeah, it's it's been, like, a, video games have been a, a very consistent part of my life for a very long time. So, speaking of Zelda, is this your first experience with Zelda? Have you played in the older games in the series? No, I never had. Breath of the Wild is my first one. I hear that from a lot of people. That's cool, though. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how I missed it. Yeah, <laughs> I never played those games growing up either. And the only reason I've played any Zelda games is because we did them for this podcast. <laughs> so that whole series was brought into my life by doing this show. So it seems like at least now you prefer these kind of long, big open world. Like we read your article about Breath of the Wild. And I know you you mentioned Stardew Valley. You're, I, I think you're also playing Animal Crossing. And Skyrim. So do you prefer these like longer, expansive, immersive experiences rather than like quick pick up and play kind of games? Yeah, I do. I've always been like, I think I like what I was talking about, like Shenmue. I've been really into the idea of like freedom within a video game. (laughs) So you're just kind of getting to explore this world that's been created for you to play in. Yeah, yeah. I guess I've never really been too much into like, what maybe a, a, someone might call like the cheap thrills of video games. Like I'm, I'm mm-hmm. in it. I'm in it for the long haul. Um, That's awesome. And I will say, I I did try to play Animal Crossing. I'd never played it before, but it's a little bit too boring for me. Not oh shit. yeah, not 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 <laughs> enough is going on. Like if I want to play like a relaxing Xanax style game, like I feel like Stardew Valley is that's it for me. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm not an Animal Crossing fan, so. Our listeners can just bring the hate. I'll take it. Yeah, I, I can take the hate too. Like I'll, I'm, I'm ready to fight anytime. If people want to fight me, I don't care. I'm a fighter, <laughs> but I, I respect that people love it so much. Like I think it's great. I think any video game is is great because it brings you joy, and especially now, you know, what I found with with video games, I think why I love them so much is just that 
my mind is like a very active and kind of dark place. And I, yeah. I think that's why our music is the way that it is. And like, I'm always just c- trying to kind of escape from, from my own head and, and make it neater and organized and, and understand myself. And I have like really bad insomnia too. Like I just can never sleep because my mind's just going and video games is the only thing where I can just turn off whatever's going on in my head and focus on, on something fully. That's awesome. You're really speaking our language yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. It's an escape. Absolutely. Yeah. So before we transition off this topic and start wrapping it up, have you ever played Xenoblade Chronicles? It's a game that's been released. It was on the Wii, then the 3DS, and they're actually going to re-release a definitive edition on the Switch coming up soon. So have you ever played that? No, I haven't. I never had the Wii or the uh, the other one you just mentioned. 3DS. The 3DS, okay. yeah. So I w- if I were you, just knowing your tastes, you should keep your eye out for Xenoblade when it comes out on the Switch. Uh, I'm actually playing the 3DS version right now, and it's really great, really exploring gigantic open worlds. It's like a 100 hours long game. It's really great. Oh, that sounds fun. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Until you said 100 hours long, I was like, well, maybe we could play it one month and have her on the show. But yeah, no way. <laughs> Actually, you know, earlier when you're talking to me about uh, like what musicians are doing in this kind of like new world, Twitch has actually been reaching out to labels and artists to start like kind of beefing up their musician aspect of Twitch. Nice. So I know like someone from Twitch reached out to someone at Epitaph to see if like any of their artists wanted to start a Twitch account. So I, I think that's something I might do. Oh, that would be so yeah. awesome. Um, let's just start having like a, I was thinking I could do like guitar lessons on it and then also just streaming, playing games. Heck yeah. So I don't know. I, I got to try out new things, I guess. I, I'm not, I haven't spent too much time on Twitch myself, but can I, either of you speak to it? Well, our site, um, we actually have a Twitch account, which several of our members host and stick to a schedule. Some will play an hour and then somebody else will come on and play an hour or a few, but it seems to be a very um, positive community. It's been a positive experience for, I know, our group, something like YouTube. A lot of times you see a lot of bullying and things like that going on, but uh, I don't hear about any of that from any Twitch channels. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely like worth exploring a little bit more. Absolutely. Yeah, I would really love to see you do that. All right. Well, we've already gone quite longer than I planned to, but how do you guys feel about a quick lightning round? Yeah, that's that's fine. I have all the time today. Okay. Appreciate it. So we came up with, actually, I came up with all these just kind of dumb, stupid, fun questions. So Right on. Um, <laughs> they are dumb if so, you came up with them, believe me. Aw. <laughs> I thought you said this was a nice community. Yeah. <laughs> We're great friends. (laughs) All right. So, Marissa, if money were no object, what piece of musical gear would you want most? Oh, I would want, um, what's the, I know it's a lightning round, but my my brain is so slow. Um, It's all right. Take your time. It's It's just a figure of speech. It's a piano, but it's like, it's just so beautiful sounding and it's really heavy and it's kind of rare. It's called. It's a. Feel free to Google. We do it all the time. In the uh, all right, let me see. <laughs> it's a. It's a Wurlitzer like two hundred A electronic piano. Oh, okay. It's like okay. a five thousand dollar piano. Wow. 
but awesome. they just sound so beautiful. Yeah, I w- it would definitely be a piano. It's not it's not a grand piano, but it's still like pretty full size. Cool. If money were no object, what video game or system would you want most? Uh, probably the PS5 when it comes out. Because I have the PS4, but I'm going to want the PS5. But, you know, financially, I don't think I'm going to be buying anything for fun in a long time. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I'll just be sticking to the essentials. So, yeah, I, w- I would definitely get the PS5 when that comes out. And um, But I- also, I-, I would love to get, like, a proper gaming PC. Oh, okay. That would be fun to have. Yeah, that's something Rich and I have not ventured into that territory. But we have friends in the community who are very much into it. I'm curious, again, because you talked about just immersing yourself, have you ever tried VR? Do you have the PS4, PSVR? I'm afraid I would have vertigo and like throw up on myself and pass out. So no, I've never tried VR. It, yeah, it does happen. Yeah, I, I think I just like, <laughs> I, I'm so fucking weak when it comes to like too powerful of graphics sometimes. Like if, okay. like if it looks no, that's fair. too good, I get like all spinny. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, so no, so no, I have not tried VR out of the fear that I'm going to throw up on someone. Okay. Give me one anecdote each. Best and worst shows you've been to as a civilian, like pre being a professional musician. Mm. One of the best shows I went to was um, there's this, I don't know if either you're familiar with No Bunny. He's like a Bay Area punk who played in my friend's house when I lived in Boulder, Colorado. It was just like a house party. It was like being in a movie where there's just like this chaos and debauchery going on all around you. And like <laughs> everyone at this show is just like partying like it's like their last night alive. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So like th- those like early house shows I went to when I was like, first started getting like really into the punk scene that those were like very special as for the worst i'd i would have to think about that a little bit more okay that's okay yeah. i don't want you to think of it's supposed to be lightning bad times that you... yeah like i guess i yeah dwelling <laughs> on my bad times like yeah yeah i don't know right. i don't know who and you really don't want to shit on anyone in the music industry either so and not that's now true. especially yeah. now when we're names, we're all getting right? like pretty much shit on right now so i don't want to I don't want to brew toxic in my community. <laughs> there you go. Okay. I like it. All right. Next question then. You're going to like this one, I hope. Are the song titles Drunk One and Drunk Two in any way a reference to the Lord song Sober and Sober Two? No, they're not. And I had no idea about these songs until yesterday. Oh, really? really? Yeah. Wow. Someone <laughs> someone tweeted like Drunk Two by Mannequin Pussy versus sober two by lord and i was like what there's a sober two and so i had no idea that they existed but uh i have to listen to them now and you know i i I think it's like it's really interesting sometimes because i kind of think that there's like this collective consciousness that a lot of artists are a part of so like when you see those similarities in work it's exciting sometimes it's depressing where you're like oh shit i'm not as like original as i thought i was or whatever but so no, yeah, the answer is no. They're they're not related at all. Gotcha. I like the fact that drunk two comes before drunk one. As Thank well. you. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best new to you movie that you've seen during quarantine? I'm sure you're watching a lot, right? I've actually only watched like two movies during quarantine. Isn't that 
fucked up. I love movies, but I've just been like not able to focus. But what did I just watch? I just watched Blue Velvet for the first time, actually. Oh, oh my. my god! <laughs> oh man, that's like one of my top three movies. I love it. Oh, like so three much. days ago, yeah, I just watched that for the first time. Yeah, like stylistically, so beautifully done and so strange. But I, I kind of it's it was like interesting to watch that as someone who really enjoyed the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, where it's like, oh, like this this movie yes. just is like the blueprint for Twin Peaks. Yeah, but I think I think what's like weird about that movie is like there's so many things that are like left open ended that you never find out. Like you never find out like who Dennis Hopper's character is. Or why, yeah. or like what this group is, or why they stole her husband and her son, or kidnapped them. Like, yeah. there's just so many things that don't get wrapped up in that movie that left me kind of like, huh? Like what? Huh? <laughs> That's Lynch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what makes it so beautiful to me. And uh, just a side note, that movie was filmed in North Carolina down on the coast around Wilmington and pretty much set in that area. I have a friend that lives there, and I went to a bachelor party one time. And we were all out drinking and just hammered in Wilmington, North Carolina. And one of the guys that lives down there took us on the Blue Velvet walking tour where we walked to all the different locations where all the stuff was filmed. It was incredible. Oh, whoa. Wow. All right. So we also know that you're from Philadelphia. Are there any Philly bands that you think we should know about? Of course. Yeah, there's a ton. I think... Um, we went on tour in December with Kississippi. Zoe is a has just this beautiful voice and um, really kind of like I kind of feel like Kississippi is if if Taylor Swift wrote punk pop songs, kind of <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, not <laughs> not not pop punk. It's not I I'm really I have a, a large distaste for pop punk, but punk influenced pop I enjoy more. So yeah, Kississippi was really lovely. Like Spirit of the Beehive, I think is like everyone in philly's favorite band um who else is making music right now i don't know it's it's kind of weird because like i haven't been in philly for like almost a year just because of touring and so now i'm like reacclimating to it yeah like what other philly bands are there so we I mentioned soul glow in the past oh yes I've i love soul seen glow. them live yeah they're pretty intense yeah and really intense hardcore oh. And I'm curious, actually, just because I've seen you interact with her on social media, are you, <laughs> this is one of those weird, like, fangirl questions, are you friends with Amanda Blank? Yes, I am. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of hers. I think I Love You is one of my favorite albums of all time. Oh, hell I yeah. can't wait. I really hope she makes another full-length album. Oh, my God. You should reach out to Amanda. I'm sure she would be very down to, to talk with you. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll put in a good word. Awesome. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, Amanda and um, Spank Rock, like Naeem, I mean, Naeem, Yuan, he he lives now in LA, but like Spank Rock was a pretty legendary project and, and now he's doing stuff under his own name. Uh, and like two of my friends worked on like all the production for his record. And then I have like a side project that I've been working on too. So hopefully that'll come out. That'll be like a new Philly thing. Awesome. Can't wait to hear that. All right. So, Marissa, Charlie XCX collaborated with Galantis for a Nintendo promotional song that we quite enjoyed here on the show. 
If you were to do a promo for a game or publisher, what would it be and who would you collab with for it? Ooh. I kind of like I want to pick like another like gamer artist who I know or not that I like know, but um, I mean, like I'm a huge fan of Grimes. Oh, God, that would be so, so awesome. like doing doing any sort of collaboration <laughs> with Grimes would be so cool. I know that she works alone, but if she were ever to like start, do, I mean, she's like slowly started doing like more collaborative stuff. But yeah, if she ever like wanted to collab on something that would be very cool. We could like make some sort of like new metal ethereal pop song because i think like a lot of our new songs are kind of like borderline new metal anyway um and then i think in terms of like what game that would be for i mean it would be kind of cool to do like one of the final fantasy the the remake they have the songs that you collect on the jukeboxes it'd be pretty cool to like make a song for that I love it. But that's awesome. Yeah, I, I can't really think of everything else. I would like want to play would be more like like I'm about to start playing like The Witcher. Nice. Like okay. so much of the stuff I like is so fantasy based that it's like hard to imagine making a song for it like without like a lyre or a or however you say that that instrument. I love the Grimes idea. And yeah, I think you should try to make that happen. Yeah, like a Grimes Grimes <laughs> new metal track for the next Final Fantasy remake amazing may i make a suggestion yeah if they please. come out with a shinmu 4 you could make a song for that and that way you get to drive that fucking forklift you know? <laughs> great i would love that too oh my gosh yeah if they, i mean i gotta play two and three to like really catch up on it and see what's up but yeah I, we'll see. yeah that'd be very cool all right. Last lightning question regarding your time as a musician. What is something you know now that you wish you knew when you started? That people actually really don't like the word pussy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we talked about this a little before we went on the air and you kind of pulled back the veil a little bit. And I would have never thought in a million years that you weren't happy with the name of the band. Do you want to elaborate on that? Uh, I mean, it's not like I'm not I'm not unhappy, but it's like I definitely understand now the ways that we have limited ourselves by just Mm. virtue of having this band name. And like for so long, I've wanted to believe that, like, you know, the the culture has definitely changed a lot. I referenced that um, Supreme Court case. I think it's like Miller versus California. You know, it's like something's only considered like obscenity if it lacks artistic literary or scientific value and so i think i think for us it's like we're not obscene because we have a lot of like intrinsic artistic value and it's not meant to be an obscenity it's meant to be a reclamation of this like word that's used to demean people but you know i i want to i want to be played on the fucking radio yeah you know i I don't i don't just like want to like be in the the shadows of like the rock world like i want to be in the spotlight of the rock world like i'm so tired of imagine dragons and the foo fighters like come on let's go it's time for the next generation uh but (laughs) you know it's it's also like i think art at its its core should be challenging and not just make you feel nothing so the fact that the band name itself elicits such a strong response from people i think it is adds value to the artistic content that, that we make together. Not like content in the way that we use that word now with social media, but just like, I think that those like strong reactions people have kind of like enriches 
the whole the whole idea of of like old world rock and roll as being something that's kind of like dangerous and and sexy and like and like challenge and challenging norms you know so i i think if if we could if we can continue to like challenge these norms then then we are in a a good spot artistically as a band but yeah like i I don't i don't want to be censored and i don't want people to dismiss us just based on that without actually listening to us but i guess you know it's it's a way to weed out the squares (laughs) well i can't tell you how many people i've told about your band and they are turned on by the name like whoa okay yeah awesome okay. let me check this out all right see that's good those are the stories i need i need to like remind myself of like yeah there's still people who have found us just because of the name yeah awesome okay so we're gonna wrap this up i'm gonna throw one last question at you marissa and thank you so much for taking the time with us this has been an awesome conversation So I have a tweet from you from April 3rd that I want to read. You said, been demoing new mannequin pussy music to record this summer and have never been more stuck between wanting to scream my guts out onto the floor with songs that feel like pure panic and wanting to create something that feels like a peaceful escape from this planet. And one of the reasons I love this tweet is because that not only encapsulates probably what you're feeling right now, based on everything that's going on in the world. But it also describes Manic and Pussy's music to date. And one of the things that I love about your songwriting and I love about your band is you have songs that are, <laughs> as you just noted, like new metal inspired and just ragers, literally. But then you have songs yeah. like Emotional High and Who You Are that are just songs that's literally like Emotional High is about celebrating friendship so when I saw a tweet like that, I was like, well, yeah, that's what she's feeling right now. That. But that's <laughs> that's also Mannequin Pussy's like M.O. So I guess what I'm asking is, what can we expect as fans from the next album or whatever it is that you're working on? What can we expect? Uh, I mean, I guess we, you can just expect that like there will be new music probably like within the next couple months, hopefully like towards the end of the summer, we're trying to record. But you know, like we're in like this weird place now where we can't practice, we can't see each other. So everyone's kind of like, just recording little riffs and ideas on their own. So Mm. I I think it lends itself to like the the possibility that like what we do going forward, is going to be like even more collaborative than anything we've ever done, just based on these experiences where we're isolated from each other. But I, yeah, I guess people could probably expect what they might already really like about us, which is like oscillating between all these these different emotions that I think we're all prone to just as humans. Like, you know, I, I've always I've always described mannequin pussy as like, why should an artist be beholden to continue to remake something in the style of like one singular emotion again and again when as human beings, we experience emotions in this very complex way where a single experience can start with anger and and lead to acceptance at a certain point, you know, like the stages of grief, but in music. So, so yeah, I, th- I think some more stages of grief, some more, some more <laughs> aggression. Um, and, you know, I, I do, I, I kind of like want to challenge myself and my bandmates to to make something that feels really beautiful and peaceful because that's kind of something I've been searching for myself in the last couple of weeks is just 
anything that can make me feel at peace like like my Zelda game does. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So now I'm going to be listening to whatever comes out next, looking for which song is about Zelda. <laughs> <laughs> everything that's going on right now i'm kind of excited to see what's going to happen to a lot of bands musically after having to deal with all this i'm sure there's going to be some great music after all this is over it's hard i've talked to like a lot of friends who are also like full-time professional musicians and a lot of people i know are like feeling pretty stuck right now it's hard to feel creative and productive when I think your brain is like on survival mode where Mm. we're just like we've just been so inundated with just terrible news all the time and everyone's just kind of trying to quiet their brains and I don't know I've been having a, a very hard time focusing on things to see them through but I think that's a a pretty common reaction to when there's an extraordinary amount of stressors like going off in your brain um, as to like, how do I adapt? How do I survive? I, I think everyone's kind of like in fight or flight mode right now. I'm a fighter. So I'm like, I say like out loud every day. I'm like, I will adapt. <laughs> I will adapt to like whatever this new world is going to be. Like I, you know, especially like earlier when we were talking in our conversation, it's like a band that kind of just made this our our professional careers. It's like, I'm not going to let this stop us in any way. Like I just have to f- find a new way to exist in the world and, and also hope that this time is going to like bring forth a better understanding of the way that we want our country to be. You know, I, I think, mm-hmm. I think obviously COVID is, is illustrating the vast inequalities that we've all known about, but and now it's like, okay, well, like, what do we do about it? How are we going to like restructure our society in the wake of this? Yeah, I don't know what role music is going to play in that, but I I see it as this interconnected web of just like adaptation. That's awesome. Your attitude about it is really awesome. Like, I will adapt. I really love that sentiment. So let's wrap it up, Marissa. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It's been so awesome. You've been very generous with your time and very kind to us. Would you like to drop some social media tags or your Twitter? I know you're on Twitter and Instagram. That's where I follow you. Any other places people could find you or the band on the internet? Yeah, right now I mostly just um, virtually exist on Instagram at Mannequin Puppy and then at Twitter at Mannequin Puppy. And then once I have a Twitch account, I'll let you know. And uh, we probably will start a Patreon because... Uh, it seems like that's going to be the way of the world where like, I'll continue to do like Mm -hmm. free guitar lessons on Instagram or whatever. But then like Bear and Thanasi and Kayleen will also give like lessons through Patreon and things like that. And just whatever, you know, we're going to do whatever we can. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for inviting me to, to talk with you both and, and getting to talk about some of the like true shit I really love. So (laughs) It's fun to get into it. Yeah, thanks you so much for joining us. And uh, I'll be expecting my Pussy Army shirt in the mail <laughs> in the next week or so. Yeah, I'll start getting to work on that design. You really should make that shirt.
All right, Sean, let's go into news. I see that you've got a few things down, so I'll let you start. Yeah, so I noticed on Twitter some sad news a week or so ago. Nobuhiko Obayashi, who is the director of one of yours and my favorite movies, House 1977, passed away from cancer at the age of 82. And I honestly, I know the guy had a really interesting career, but I'll be quite honest, I don't know too much about it. I do know that he made House and it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's just very unique. And we've talked about it before. I think one of these days we'll have to do a rewatch of that movie in a really in-depth segment. I highly recommend that movie and it's a sad, sad loss. Yeah. Yeah. The movie is a real freak fest, but a really (laughs) fun, um, lighter side of horror movie to watch. So, uh, yeah, something that I really, really appreciate. Yeah, I think it's about the closest thing you can get to a live action cartoon. And there's literally like animation cells overlaid over live action in some portions of the movie. It's like a dream put to film and not a nightmare. Maybe sometimes a bad dream, sometimes a good dream, but it's like it's a very dreamlike movie. Well, speaking of movies, one thing that I've been doing during this pandemic time is organizing my DVD library. As you know, RF Generation is a site where you can catalog your video games if you're a collector. Well, Sean and I both have a love of movies, and I also collect DVDs and Blu-rays and especially horror films like House that we just mentioned. And for a long time, just like RF Generation has an app, I've been looking for an app to catalog my horror collection because When I'm out, I like to know what I have and hopefully not double buy something, which I've done on several occasions with movies and video games alike. So I looked over some reviews and I came across this app, which I wanted to mention to our listeners because I think it would be very beneficial to some of you who collect movies like I do. And that app is called DVD Library. I went through several apps and I noticed that A lot of them would only let you catalog 40 to 50 films. And of course, I have a lot. I actually have... 289 separate horror films, and that doesn't include the amount of horror films in collection, so I'm somewhere over 300 right now. And so those apps obviously weren't going to work for me, and I would have to purchase those apps to extend beyond 50. So DVD Library does not have a limit. It allows you to create your own shelves. I have a horror shelf. That's the only one that I'm tracking right now, but I could do like drama, thrillers, comedies, or any shelf that I wanted to create for that. It also has a barcode scanner, which is very helpful as well. So if you're looking for something out there to catalog your DVD and Blu-ray collection, check out DVD Library. Um, I really recommend it. That sounds cool. I got rid of most of my DVDs before I moved here, but I do have about 15. Not enough to have to log them on a website, but that sounds really cool for the amount that you have. And Actually, it's funny you should mention that. I wonder if Buried on Mars Kevin could use this site because he posted a really nice picture of his movie collection on Twitter uh, yesterday, and it's massive. So uh, maybe he would enjoy that site. Well, I know you only have 15, man, but you might want to uh, be able to track which Godzilla films you actually have. That's true. (laughs) That's very true. You know, when I bought that big old box set uh, a couple months ago, I had to figure out which one's 
I already owned and the formats of those Godzilla movies, a lot of them are double features, but then a lot of them aren't double features, but they still say both versions of the name of the movie Mm -hmm. and it it can get very confusing. You just reminded me of something else. I didn't put it in the notes, but I don't know if this is newsworthy per se, but I found out via Twitter that Douglas Bogart of Limited Run Games is an RF Generation user. Wow, (laughs) very cool. That's pretty cool because... We're always singing the praises of limited run games. I mean, not in a sycophantic way or anything. We're just very much fans of what they do. Uh, So he tweeted, anyone have a Google sheet I can use or list all of the Region 1 physical Vita games? And then another Twitter user, JP's Switch Mania, shout out to JP because he says, have you seen this site? And he links to RF Generation. Uh, So Douglas Bogart says, oh, yeah, I forgot about that site. This list converts very well. So, yeah, shout out to JP for linking us and shout out to Doug. Hope you like our collection tools. The last news item I have here is something that's like huge right now. And I was reluctant to talk about it, but I also thought that maybe we shouldn't ignore it because it's one of the biggest news stories in video games. It's like the shot heard around the world, kind of. And that is The Last of Us 2 leaks. Now, even by the time this podcast airs, the situation is going to be totally different because there's news breaking about it like today. Before we were recording, I was seeing news that the leaks happened potentially in a different way than everybody thought initially. So we're not going to divulge any of the spoilers. Don't worry about it. What I really wanted to just kind of get a feel for from you, Rich, is how do you feel about leaks and hype? I've talked about this before, how I don't really follow like pre-release hype, except for in like very special cases. In the case of The Last of Us, I really don't enjoy Naughty Dog's games. And I didn't even finish Uncharted 4 because I was just really not liking it at all. I didn't like The Last of Us DLC we did The Last of Us as a game for the podcast. We also did Uncharted 1 for the podcast, which you have experience with. So for me, I heard about these spoilers and I started drinking the tea and I wanted to get all involved in the drama and I wanted to know about, you know, all these supposedly bad things Naughty Dog was doing and how Druckmann was screwing everything up and the disgruntled employees and all this stuff. Uh, Again, allegedly, 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 but I know all the spoilers. I went and watched them all. Uh, I had a good laugh at everything. But I wonder, like, how do you deal with these kind of things when you hear about them? Has it ever happened where a game you were anticipating had some kind of leak or got spoiled for you? And are you into it? Are you like the kind of person who just mutes and tries to uh, social media blackout when something like this happens or what? Yeah, I can't think of any game that has come out that I have been interested in at launch. I mean, you know how I am. I am the kind of person that collects in bulk and has a lot of games, so I typically wait for those games to drop down. And I've never looked into any games to see the spoilers or anything like that. So in collecting these games, I have to wait months to get them down, you know, to the $20 price range is where I, I like to usually grab them and below. But during the time in between, I really don't look at spoilers or anything like that. So in that sense, leaks aren't something that really stand out for me and not something that I'm interested in. I always question leaks and the fact that 
Is this someone that's disgruntled with the company that's leaking something? Uh, are they receiving money for it? Or is this just propaganda brought upon by the studio to get more people interested in the game? So you never know in that regard. And typically, I just kind of stay away from it. It's not anything that I feel like is newsworthy. New consoles, the announcements of new games and stuff like that. I do try to keep up with those and enjoy that. But uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of leaks and uh, just not a culture that I'm really interested in being involved in. Gotcha. I think that's a <laughs> that's a fair and reasoned approach to the whole situation. And like I said, I just I don't know. I guess I I guess because I'm not the hugest fan of Naughty Dog, for me there's an element of of Schadenfreude of like, oh yeah, this is a hoot that they're just getting raked over the coals. You know, everybody's you know, ripping them a new one in the comments. If you look at their official Twitter account, and then I mean, don't look at the replies if you don't want to see the spoilers, but if you don't care, the replies are just hilarious and ridiculous. So it's just funny to see like a corporate official tweet and then what happens underneath it to me is very entertaining. Now, having said that, if it was a game I loved and was looking forward to, right? Like if it was like... Deadly Premonition 2 might be yeah. one of the few games that I actually purchased this year. Now, if there was a huge leak of Deadly Premonition 2 and like major plot points were revealed and you couldn't avoid them on Twitter or social media, I'd probably be upset. And it makes me feel like I kind of get what the people who are anticipating The Last of Us 2 are feeling. So, yeah, it's kind of like I am challenged to be empathetic for the people who are angry about these leaks happening and at the same time i'm just like oh man naughty dog you got wrecked that's hilarious you know what i mean <laughs> yeah so that's our that's our take on that the major gaming news story of the year <laughs> <laughs> all right well since that's it for news let's go into recent pickups sean what did you get yeah, I actually have one. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'm still selling off like crazy. And I actually achieved something that I've been trying to for a long time. And I talked about it last month. I got my three shelving units down to two just nice. by trimming the fat, selling off a bunch of games and, you know, giving some away and trading or whatever. So that was really nice. And now I got to rearrange everything and I have all the Sony platform games on one shelf and everything else on the other shelf. It looks really sharp, really densely packed together. So I'm really happy about that. And there was a lot of money in my PayPal. And I know I said I was being very cautious about spending any of it because of what's going on in the world right now. But I just had to get a copy of Disaster Report 4. Now, Disaster Report is a franchise that I've been a fan of since forever, since the first time I Googled the term PS2 hidden gems like 12 years ago or whatever, and I stumbled upon Disaster Report and the sequel Raw Danger. This game, Disaster Report 4, has a fascinating development history. It's been in development for almost a decade. It was delayed because of the tsunami in 2011, and it changed developers, changed publishers. It finally came out, and 
it was kind of like the last guardian. It's like, I have to get my hands on this game no matter what. And I have to add the rare must have physical edition in my collection. So it's kind of crazy because first of all, I wanted to get it on PlayStation four. It's available on PS4 and switch. Now I have a switch, but I want it on PS4 because it has virtual reality capabilities. So I wanted to see what that was all about. And to my chagrin, the game could not be pre-ordered about two weeks before it came out. And I looked on Amazon. I looked on a couple other sites. Game was actually pretty hard to find. And then when it came out, I looked on eBay. There were five or six sellers that were selling it for like a hundred bucks. And then there was one seller out of California who was selling, he must've had 10 copies. He was selling them at retail. So I was able to pick one up. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Like I didn't think the game would get a massive print run, but I guess because of supply issues due to COVID, I'm not sure. Um, It was just hard to find, but luckily I got my hands on a copy Now there's only a couple more games coming out this year. You know, I'm not like super into buying brand new games, as you just mentioned, we were talking about. But like I said, Deadly Premonition 2 is something I'm amped for and Persona 5 Scramble, which I'm not even sure if that has a 2020 release date for North America. But those are the two games I have my eyes on. And I'm trying to (laughs) trying to, again, stay away from the new release hype. But yeah, trying to find this copy of Disaster Report 4, I was like in a FOMO panic thinking like, Oh man, like I, can I not get my hands on this game? I do want it physically. Like I'll, I'll buy it digitally if I have to just to play it, but I want a physical copy. So I'm glad I was able to get one. So yeah, that's my one pickup for the month. What about yourself, Rich? Well, speaking of games that I was looking forward to coming out on the PS4, I'm going to save one of the pickups I had to speak about it on the games played for this month, which is the segment we'll go into next. But as far as pickups, I had a few. And uh, one of them was Tumble Pop, which is a game for the original Game Boy. This is one of the tougher-to-find copies for the system, but uh, not one that breaks the bank. I actually found that in a Game Boy Collector's Facebook group, which I've had a lot of success in. I also picked up a PS1 copy of The Hive, which is a shooter that I had been looking for. But imagine that, you know, me picking up a shooter, which is typically a genre that I don't play a lot of and not a big fan of, but I'm kind of changing my tune on some of those, Sean, as you know. And then for the Genesis, I picked up a copy of James Pond 3, nice. which is a <laughs> which is a cutesy platformer where you play as a fish who's dressed in a tuxedo. I had one and two complete, and this isn't a series that is very expensive, so I just went ahead and picked up number three. Sounds like maybe you've had some experience with this series, Sean. Just very faintly nostalgic for it. Like, I remember it. Like, I couldn't tell you anything about it, but maybe I should uh, fire it up someday and we could talk about it. Yeah, for sure. And then another game I picked up for the Genesis was Buck Rogers Countdown to Doomsday. I had some money in my PayPal account. And this is one that's not on the extremely expensive side, but it's a uh, strategical RPG. And uh, it's one that our good friend Duke Togo has raved about something he played during his childhood. I believe he just picked up a copy of this game as well. And then finally, 
for the Genesis, I picked up a copy of Master of Monsters. This, again, is a kind of strategic RPG made by Renovation Studios, which, as I've mentioned before on this show, that is one of the subsets I'm trying to collect for the Genesis, not going for a complete set. But I love Renovation and all of the games that they produce. So I was able to pick that up. And to date, I only have one more game to pick up, and that is Ease 3. So that will be my last title to complete that subset. And really excited about doing that. And then my last two pickups, I'm probably going to take some heat from this, especially because you and I have been so careful during this COVID-19 pandemic, but I picked up two pinball machines, man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. As long as you wipe them down with sanitizer and clean them out real good. I did. The first one, uh, someone actually brought it to my home and did a COVID-19 drop-off where they just sort of put the legs on it and left it out in my driveway. So that was cool. And they did that, and I sprayed it down completely. And that machine is a Williams machine from the 80s. It's called Millionaire. It's a pretty cool pin. It actually has like a roulette wheel under the play field that spins. Um, Has a multi-ball option. But the best thing about it, man, it's that whole like overly excessive 80s culture. I'm obsessed with the 80s and, you know, it's that height of money, that whole cocaine-driven environment of the 80s. And so this pin just fits so nicely into my collection. I I love nostalgia like that. And uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And then the other one I picked up was one called Pharaoh, which is also a Williams machine that has sort of an upper and lower play field. Of course, has an Egyptian theme and uh, very cool and one that I had been looking for for a long time. I picked up these machines non-working for a really, really good price. I think during all this COVID, what we're seeing in some cases is the price of things, especially with pinball kind of going down as people are kind of forced to sell things or want to sell things to make more room. And then sometimes with video games, I'm seeing the price go up. I saw in a group the other day that someone was trying to buy a copy of Streets of Rage 3. And I guess, you know, with all the popularity of the Streets of Rage 4 coming out the other day and everything that's going on with COVID-19 and everyone getting these checks, a guy said that he put a $150 top bid on it and lost and that it actually sold for $460. Wow. (laughs) So that's nuts. Yeah, it's really nuts and uh, hard to believe. But uh, yeah, so those are my scores. I picked up two pinball machines, which is cool. And uh, if you listen to our interview with Marissa, she has one in her place. And we talk a little bit about pinball in that. Awesome. So let's roll into what are you playing, Rich? You want to go first on this one? Sure. I'm sure you've been playing a lot of stuff. And for myself, (laughs) I've only got one game. I mentioned that I did have one PS4 game in my pickups. And this is a game that I saw a preview of in, I believe it was probably Valforous. There was this preview for a game called Journey to the Forbidden Planet that looked really awesome. It's uh, the type of game where you're a spaceman, you're working for this like galaxy-wide company, and you're charged with going to different planets and collecting resources and finding out about the wildlife and stuff like that to see if they're inhabitable. It's just a really lush and beautiful, colorful game. It's in the first person, which I'm usually not a fan of at all. I prefer third-person games when it comes to shooters. But 
I am really, really enjoying this game, Sean. My son and I have been playing it together, and we've been having a blast. There's uh, boss battles, there's collectibles. The game has an incredible sense of humor. It is just so funny. And the game is interspersed with these FMV moments of these fake commercials. One is for, like, this tissue that you stick up your nose and you can pull out your ear and it supposedly, like, cleans your brain and <laughs> takes away all the negativity. There's another one, a buddy you can make out of meat. It's hilarious, man. It's such a good game. We're having such a great time with it, and I can't wait to wrap it up and uh, give a full report on this game, hopefully by next month. Uh, I got to check it out. My coworker, Matt, shout out to Matt. He's always talking about this game currently. He's playing it, and uh, I think he said it's on Game Pass on Xbox, so I'm pretty sure I have access to it, and cool. be- between you and him, my interest has definitely peaked on this game. Yeah, it's great, man. It's a lot of fun. All right, Sean, so what have you been playing? Actually, it's not that much, Rich, but there's a little bit of a background to it. So I'm playing Xenoblade Chronicles 3D on the 3DS, and... Our longtime listeners might remember last summer when I was playing this game. The story is, I started playing Xenoblade Chronicles on the 3DS last summer. So I played it for about six or seven hours. I got to a boss that I couldn't beat. And I thought, man, I really love this game, but maybe I'm just not specced out more. I don't really want to grind, but I also don't want to stop playing the game. So... I started the game over on the Wii version on one of my modded Wii U's. And I told the story on one of our episodes where I was trying to get fancy with the hack on the virtual Wii on this Wii U, and I actually bricked the virtual Wii in the middle of playing Xenoblade Chronicles for the second time, and this time I was like 30 hours into the game. So couldn't play it, couldn't access my save. I was done. I was... Pretty upset. Uh, I didn't even care about the the Wii U or the Wii itself. You know, mistakes happen. But I was like most upset about, you know, not being able to access my game and access my save. So just stop playing and let it go. Too bad, right? This year, they're releasing on the Switch Xenoblade Chronicles, the definitive edition. And I got to tell you, Rich, it's one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen. It looks amazing. And for somebody like me who already really loves this game, it's like one of the best remasters I've ever seen. The problem is, again, I'm just trying not to spend tons of money on games and I don't want to buy this game for a third time. So uh, one day I just picked up my 3DS looking for something to play. I fired up my old save of Xenoblade Chronicles on the 3DS. I was at this boss that last year I was stuck on and couldn't beat. And I just fired up the game and started fooling around and ended up beating the boss. And I was just like, oh, okay. I wonder <laughs> I wonder what was the hang-up with this thing that I couldn't beat him in the first place. Because uh, I just went in and started button mashing and didn't even really know what I was doing because I couldn't remember. So I've been playing that. And I got to tell you... This game is phenomenal. It's fantastic. It deserves all the accolades it gets. It is often called one of the best RPGs of all time, one of the best games of all time. I totally endorse that hype, and I highly recommend it to anybody who likes RPGs, likes big open worlds. It is really 
a comfort food kind of game for me. I really like the characters. I like the battle system. I like just running around doing side quests. And I know this game has a reputation for being a very, very long game, but I actually looked at a walkthrough recently and I'm actually like 60%, I'm like more than halfway through the main story quest. I'm like 60% through based on what area I'm in. So I got to say, it's cool to be playing this game, even though I'm playing the 3DS version and I'm really, really pining for that Switch version. I just can't bring myself to shell out $60 for a game that I can already play right now in this current situation. But I'm really happy to see the game in the zeitgeist yet again. Like a lot of times when a game comes out, I'll mute it on Twitter just because I'm sick of every single person in my feed tweeting about it. Like I did this with when Animal Crossing came out, even when Doom Eternal came out. like And even when Trump came out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say my mute list is very long. and uh, But with the Xenoblade stuff, all the screenshots and all the little news and tidbits and trailers, like I love it. I love all of it because it's so beautiful. And just thinking that a whole new crowd of people is going to be able to experience this game because... There's something weird about Switch, and I've talked about this in our group chat with our friends, is that the Switch just triggers this like hoarding, collecting men- mentality in people. I've seen so many Twitter posts and Reddit threads about people have these insane Switch collections, and I have a feeling these aren't people who were video game collectors in general in the first place. There's just something about those slim red cases that <laughs> makes people want to grab them all and hoard them. I don't know hoard is like a derisive term, but you know what I mean. People are like collecting Switch harder than they collect other things. So I have a feeling Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive on Switch is going to do very well. And that makes me very excited because like I said, I believe that it is one of the best games ever made. Cheekbones that shine like diamonds Oh darkness, I am nerveless Eyes closed for lack of purpose Or lack of light Or fear that I'll lose it I'm still afraid of the dark You are my light for so long Oceans deep and mountains tall
Alright, so it's time to talk about our game of the month for April, which was Control. Before we do that, we're going to get into our question of the month, which we typically throw up on social media. And Sean, I'm going to let you take over. Yes, sir, Rich. You came up with the question this month, and I think it's a fun one. The question is, Control is a game based on using mind powers, especially in combat. If you had a choice of one of the following powers, what would you choose and why? Telekinesis, mental manipulation, precognition, astral projection, or mind reading? So this was a fun one, Rich. We got a lot of responses, so Mm -hmm. let's get right into it. Our good friend Bill McGee, he said, Telekinesis would be so awesome, but I'm leading towards mental manipulation. Just imagine being able to influence anyone that you needed something from, especially if it was a Toydarian. Then you would need money. So, <laughs> Rich, did you know what a toy Darian was? I had to look it up because it's a Star Wars thing. No idea. I mean, okay. I remember that. I remember the scene. <laughs> These aren't the droids you're looking for, but that's it. I don't know if that's to do with that or not. Well, when I Googled it, it came up with the flying guy who was like the administrator of the pod races from episode oh, one. So okay. I think that's what the reference is. Uh, an episode one reference? Shame on you, Bill. Shame on you. <laughs> yeah, but it's a pod racer <laughs> reference, so that's okay. Next, we have at CollectorCast, our good friend Duke Togo. He says, telekinesis, precognition sounds very Pandora and unpleasant, and I don't think it's ethical to invade the minds of others. So he's going telekinesis. Adam Bickley says, this is tough, but I think telekinesis would be the coolest. The ability to move stuff by thinking about it would be a neat party trick and profitable to boot. Next, we have the Pocky X. He says, I lack the emotional maturity for all of them, but I suppose I could do the least amount of damage by going with telekinesis. I would literally live my dream of being a traveling musician, taking all the money I can before moving on so that no one catches on that it's all real. (laughs) Uh, Buried on Mars Kevin says, The good kind of precognition where I can accurately predict the outcome of sporting events and not the bad kind where I can see everyone's death. (laughs) So the back to the future two reference there. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) Corey Robertson, our good in real life friend says mind reading. If I can manage it, I don't want to hear everyone's daily thoughts and be intrusive. I'd use the power to help interrogate criminals and stop terrible things from happening. Okay. Next we got metal fro Josh. He says probably telekinesis, Always thought it was a cool power in movies and comics, and the ability to move stuff just by thinking about it would be a ton of fun. Mm. Next, we have Kelsey. He posted up a picture that apparently was from the movie Minority Report, I think, because (laughs) he just (laughs) posted an image reply, and I said, please explain this. And he said, I just want to solve crimes with Tom Cruise. Luke Skywalker ruined astral projection for all of us in The Last Jedi. So (laughs) I'm thinking that's precognition a la Minority Report, but I've never seen it. So that's where he was going with that. 
Next, we have Neo Magic Warrior. He said, precognition seems to be the best power to get rich without arising too much suspicion. Lots of blackjack in my future. <laughs> and lastly, we have Dave Smith. He says, telekinesis so I could literally crush my enemies. So don't make enemies with Dave Smith, I guess, is the lesson <laughs> yeah, there. <no> Dave Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Dave yeah. Smith and Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I like this question, Rich, because each one of these answers is like one of those monkey paw, be careful what you wish for yeah. kind of scenarios, especially like, like mind reading. I think mind reading would be a curse. I don't want to read anybody's mind. Yeah. I don't want to know what people really think about me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh Mental manipulation, you don't need special powers for. Just ask some of my ex-girlfriends. <laughs> Precognition, as a few of the tweeters mentioned, could be disastrous as well because you could find out when you were going to die or if yep. somebody close to you was going to get hurt or die or something. Now, astral projection, I would think, has some... It depends on what the ability is and i had to actually look up what astral projection was and it's like projecting your spirit to a different place yes i wondered like does that usually entail that you can do things in the physical world or you can only move around like a ghost and observe things so again that could be almost like like when we played beyond two souls you had that ability in that game so you could use it for forces of good or you could also use it for forces of bad to like spy on people so like a lot of people, my answer for this question is telekinesis, just because there's the least temptation to do evil. And you could do a lot of evil and a lot of damage with telekinesis, don't sure. get me wrong. Presumably you can fly because you could like yes. move your own body with the power of your mind, like, you know, Magneto or like Jesse in control. Maybe I would like travel the world and like liberate North Korean prison camps or something like with this special power, you could figure out a way to use it for good, I think, more than all of the other ones. So that's what I would choose. What about you, Rich? Well, you know, initially I thought precognition would be the best because, you know, me looking out for number one as far as, you know, wealth and being able to accumulate wealth, I feel like precognition would probably be the best. And with that wealth, you could spread it out and give it to the needy. It's not a power that... I would use selfishly, but thinking about it and like what you said, knowing how you're going to die, when you're going to die is, is just something I would never want to know or knowing about the demise of someone that's close to me. Those are just things I care nothing about. So I flipped and I went with telekinesis and a big part of the reason is, like you said, you could fly to different places, you know, visit places all over the world, which would be awesome. Also, what we're not thinking about as far as gaining riches with telekinesis is you could do some real damage playing roulette. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's that's good. <laughs> you know, there's a ore mine in control. Like, you could actually use your powers for, like, industrial uses, right? Like, you could you could contract yourself out and save businesses, like, tons of money on heavy machinery and just do odd jobs for excavation, like you said. So, 
Yeah, there's a lot of uh, practical use to telekinesis. Even if you don't want to go good or evil, you can go neutral and just <laughs> earn an honest living being telekinetic. Now, I got to ask, man, did you ask Mrs. Ghost this question? I did. And you know what's funny? She trolled me with her answer because she said <laughs> telekinesis. And I said, okay, why? And she said, so I could move stuff with my mind. And I said, no, that's what telekinesis is. Like, what would you do with it? And she was like, I would move stuff. And I was like, all right, you're just trolling me. Forget about it. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Banana did sort of the same thing to me, except she picked two answers. And I was like, you cannot have two answers. So f you, I'm not even going to say what you're going to pick on the show. So there it is. Nice. So she tried some mental manipulation, but it didn't work. Is right. What you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Not this time. Awesome. Well, good question, Rich. And that brings us into our game of the month, which, as you said, is Remedy's 2019 game control. So let's go into our participants. Of course, you and me, first and foremost, then Mr. Stubbs, Dougley007, Wild Bill 52, and Disposed Hero. The game was developed by Remedy and published by 505 Games. Remedy is a Finnish company. 505 Games is an Italian publisher. So this is a mostly European production, if you look at it that way. It was released on August 27th, 2019, to almost unanimous critical acclaim. It was released for Windows, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One. It is part of the Remedyverse, which is a shared universe between Remedy's other properties, such as Alan Wake and Quantum Break and Max Payne. There was a DLC release called The Foundation, but we will not cover that in the show because neither of us played it. And I thought it was noteworthy that the game is inspired partly by the SCP Foundation. Now, Rich, do you know what the SCP Foundation is? I think it's some fictional writers group and they're kind of taking stories and ideas from a community of writers and it's mainly like sci-fi paranormal phenomenon elements. Yeah. Like you said, it's like a fan fiction community. Somebody came up with this thing called the SCP Foundation, which is, uh, I believe it's secure, contain and protect. And it's kind of like an X-Files-ish, Ghostbusters-ish creepypasta kind of thing where people just write these fake files and they have this dossier on all these different phenomena, these paranormal things that they wrote about. The kind of idea behind it is that there's paranormal activity going on all around us and we just don't see it. It's common to everyday life and these people write about it. It's very neat. So... I would highly recommend that people who enjoyed this game or enjoy this kind of science fiction check out the SCP Foundation website and maybe go ahead and write your own SCP. So we usually go into our history with the games. And once again, kind of like our South Park episode, I want to look at our histories with the developer because this game just came out last year. We can't have a history with it, mm -hmm. but... I am a huge, huge, huge fan of Remedy Entertainment. 
I played the original Max Payne way back when it came out. I never finished it, though, because of the infamous nightmare scene. Do you know about this, Rich? I do not. So it's one of the most hated sequences in a video game. It's this scene where Max Payne is having nightmare, and you have to run through this completely pitch black dark area, but there's a red outline on the floor that you have to follow. The problem is this red outline which is basically like a tightrope. It's not exactly like you just walk along the line. It's very flighty and fleeting, and the hit detection on it is not great. So you will fall off of it a million times. You'll make the wrong turn. You'll run too fast. It's just excruciating, and it actually made me quit the game way back in the day, and I have never to this day finished the original Max Payne. But I've played and completed every one of Remedy's other games, including Max Payne 2, Alan Wake, and Quantum Break. So I was so excited to play this game, Rich, that like Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, this was a game that just kind of came into my possession. And I said, hey, Rich, I'm going to play this game. You want to make it a podcast game or what? And we both agreed to do it pretty quickly for a more recent game. So I was super hyped for Control based on my history with Remedy. And I should mention, we played Alan Wake for this podcast a few years back. And also, I just want to clarify, we also played Max Payne 3 way back, but that was not developed by Remedy. That was developed by one of the Rockstar Studios, I believe. So it's part of the Max Payne franchise, but not a Remedy game. I just wanted to clarify that. So, Rich, do you have any history with Remedy? I know we talked about how you didn't actually play Alan Wake, but I think you said you watched the whole thing on YouTube, right, when you were editing our podcast? I did. Our podcast used to consist of four people, and two of us would play a retro game each month, and the other two would play a modern game each month. And, of course, I was on the retro side. So I did not get to play Alan Wake that month, but... I was so interested in it that I actually watched a playthrough of the game. It was really cool. I was just fascinated with the story and the mechanics. So Control is definitely a game that was on my radar as well and uh, something that I was very, very excited to play. So for those who don't know and have never played a Remedy game, what's kind of great about Remedy is that they make third-person shooter games But every one of their games has some kind of twist or something that makes it special. Like Max Payne and Max Payne 2 had bullet time, which is like that slow motion. You're in the Matrix, like leaping and shooting in slow motion, dodging bullets, you know, flying out of the way of bullets kind of thing that you can. John Woo stuff. Right, right. (laughs) And then Alan Wake had the whole flashlight mechanic where you'd weaken the enemies by shining a flashlight on them and you couldn't damage them until you made them like pop by shining the flashlight on them for a certain amount of time and then you could shoot them so that was a really cool mechanic a lot of risk versus reward in the gameplay there quantum break the whole shtick to that game was time travel so there's a lot of slowing down of enemies stopping time making like timed explosions and stuff that you can activate but again just a third person shooter at its core running around shooting but you also have these special powers Control is similar to that, and we'll get into the special powers when we get into the gameplay. But first, we need to talk a little bit about the story and the characters. Now, Rich, we've been doing this thing called the plot in 60 seconds, 
And you'll see, I put a little message to you in the notes here. I was going to mention that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if you've prepared one for this, but uh, the story in this game is one of the big challenges. And our listeners know it's it's always a challenge for me, the stories in games. But this one, man, it's a conundrum wrapped in an enigma, (laughs) wrapped in a riddle. (laughs) So I would love to hear your 60-second recap here. Indeed, I did come up with one. I was up to the challenge. So uh, here goes, man. Story in 60 seconds. Guided by a voice in your head known as Polaris, you're guided to metropolitan New York City to a large building unseen by most human eyes. This is the oldest house, the headquarters of the Federal Bureau of Control, a secret U.S. government agency responsible for the investigation of paranormal phenomena. You soon learn that the Bureau is currently under assault by an alien virus, dubbed the Hiss, that takes control of its victims and, if left unchecked, could take over the world. It's no coincidence that you've been called to assist in containing the Hiss, and you are quickly appointed director of the Bureau, a position with its own special perks. It's not long before you piece together that this isn't your first encounter with the Bureau. As a child, you and your brother Dylan came across an odd item an object of power in the form of a projector, which possessed significant paranormal abilities. But you weren't the only ones to stumble upon it. Dylan is abducted during this encounter, and you spent your entire life trying to find him, and your new cohorts have knowledge of his whereabouts. Can you defeat the Hiss and unravel the mystery of your brother's whereabouts? Welcome, Director Faden. Not bad, not bad. I like it. So. Yeah, that's a good start. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a very dead story, one I'm not sure that I have a full grasp on right now. But uh, I think this is sort of the type of plot that introduces you to the game and uh, makes you a little more curious about what's going on without spoiling anything. Yeah, and it definitely throws you right into it right off the bat. Oh, yeah. And within the first 10 minutes... They say, oh, you're the new director. The (laughs) original director commits suicide under these weird circumstances. And now you're the new director. And it's very weird because there's no pretense whatsoever as to how you got in there, why you're there, you know, why you are the new director, what the director's function is. Mm -hmm. It's so weird. It would be as if you walked into a grocery store and everybody just was like, oh, the manager's here, you're the new manager, you know, how many registers should we have open? Where's the frozen food delivery? It would be, you'd say, what the hell is going on? You know what I mean? Yeah. So this was very like jarring to me in the very beginning of the game. How did you feel about it? It's an odd way to begin a game, though it is fascinating because you know that part of this game is going to be finding out why you're the director, why you've been appointed to this position, because you meet different people throughout the game inside of the oldest house that carry on different jobs. And you're ahead of all these other people. And so you're like, how did I get here? What is this? And why are these people actually listening to me and depending on me? So it is quite an odd situation, but I think it sort of adds an element to the story that makes you want to push on and find out what's going on in this game. I'm glad that you felt that way. (laughs) It took me a while to get into that frame of mind. And Mm -hmm. 
I don't want to get way too far ahead of the conversation, but I think that it never paid off for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So wanting to push ahead, wanting to like, okay, what does this mean? What is this Federal Bureau of Control? You know, what is this all? Who is her brother? Who is this third entity that she keeps talking to? Is it me, the player? That would be cool. Turns out it's not, you know? So here comes one of my first criticisms of this game is that I didn't really get the story and I didn't really love the story. I didn't hate it. I wasn't like offended by it, but it was just like too impenetrable, really enigmatic to an extent that I didn't want to read through literally thousands of collectibles to kind of piece together what was going on. Now, I gathered a lot of great tidbits by watching YouTube videos on people who did do that stuff. So trying to find the Easter eggs and the references and just the general plot background and lore kind of secondhand that way. But I will say just in a vanilla playthrough, even after the credits rolled, I was still like, what the hell did I just go through? You know? Yeah, and I had that same feeling, too, when I ended the game. So I don't want you to feel like you're alone in that. And there were a lot of loose threads at the beginning of this game. I agree. But I don't know, man. Something about the story was probably the only thing that really pushed me through this game. You and I are big fans of sci-fi. And so I really wanted to kind of figure out what was going on. And I think I have somewhat of a grasp on it after some time has passed. And so... I'll talk about that maybe in my final thoughts on this game. But I agree, one of the things about this game is the thousands of collectibles and how much of the story is actually inside of those. And it would be like playing this game and reading a novel going along with it just to have a full grasp of what's going on in this game. And it seems like every room you go into, there's something there that you're supposed to peruse and read. And... I'm usually the type of person who likes to look over these things. I'm trying to think what game it was that we played fairly recently that had collectibles like this where you had to read about the story. And I did that and you didn't. And I felt like it gave me a really good grasp on it. But it wasn't overwhelming. But with this, I think it's completely overwhelming. Yeah, that's totally fair. Our longtime listeners will know I'm usually like that. Like, I'll run around and collect everything, no problem. But it's rare for me to feel like it's worth my time to stop and read this extra stuff. It always makes me feel bad. And this is a thing Remedy does in in all their games. Quantum Break was a lot like this. There was tons of extra stuff to give you background to the story. The difference is Quantum Break had an understandable story from start to finish. There were some unanswered questions and some mysteries. But again, I feel like with Control, it's almost a complete mystery. Like it's, I would say, like 75% of what you see on the surface is unexplained or unanswered questions. Mm -hmm. But having said that, there's something about just being kind of lost in a mystery. If, If this was a book, I wouldn't be able to handle it because you got to give me something you got to throw me some kind of bone to keep me going but for you you're saying the story kept you going in a certain way for me it was kind of a combination like the combat scenarios 
daisy chain to the story. So mm. when you get a story beat, then you get a good combat scenario, then you get another story beat, even though there's very little clarity at the end of the day. And by the way, you're asking me to do all this homework by picking up these collectibles throughout the entire game. And on top of that, it's important to say the characters in the game that you encounter during the story and Jesse herself, the main character, are just prolific info dumpers <laughs> to the point where you can have these optional conversations with some of the NPCs like Emily and the security guy that you can just go down a, a checklist of, oh, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And it's just info dump, info dump, info dump, exposition, exposition, exposition. It's like all noise, no signal, I guess is what I'm trying to say, right? So yeah. all unanswered questions, very few like actual nuggets of truth. I get it. That's part of it. This is like a very X-Files inspired, very Twin Peaks inspired kind of universe. So I'm really kind of conflicted about it because I don't want to say the story was bad per se, but for my style of how I consume fiction and what I want out of a work of fiction, it just didn't give me enough satisfaction of like, what is this? You know what I mean? <laughs> so. Absolutely. And I think one of the problems with this game is the story doesn't stand on its own away from the collectibles. Yeah. So, you know, collectibles are fine and are nice little nuggets to help enhance a story. But if you're expecting someone to read the collectibles to get the full story, I think that's where it fails. And I think that's where the story of this game kind of falls short. One of the other things that kind of kept me going in the game as well is not really knowing if you're working for the good guys or the bad guys. So the first person you meet is a lady named Emily. I'm not really sure what position she has, but she's rather high up and she's kind of feeding you information about the hiss and asking you to help her. So this is sort of the only place where you can get information about what's going on. And so you have to trust that and move about through the game. But at no point until the end do you really know if you're on the good side or the quote-unquote bad side, if there is a bad side to all of this. So I think that's one of the elements that really kept me going in the game, is to see what the purpose was behind everything and what were the people's intentions who were part of this Federal Bureau of Control. Well, I think we can get more into the story as we talk through the other elements of the game, and definitely we'll talk about the ending towards our final thoughts. But gameplay is huge in this game, so yes. shall we roll into the, the gameplay portion? Absolutely. Awesome. So, as I mentioned before, Remedy makes third-person shooters. That's their expertise. They're very good at it. <laughs> so, Control is along those lines. It's a third-person shooter. They kind of expanded their horizons a bit, and it does have flying and platforming type elements, but at its core, it's a third-person shooter. What makes the game kind of unique is you have one weapon. It's a handgun visually, right? So it's like this sci-fi looking handgun that morphs. And the clever thing that they did here was that you actually change the forms of the gun to things that have these weird names, but essentially they're your shooter archetypes, right? So you yes. have a shotgun, a machine gun, sniper rifle, pistol. <laughs> so it will feel comfortable, but it looks and sounds cool, right? So your weapon forms are grip, 
which is the pistol, shatter, which I believe is the shotgun. It is. Spin, which is like an SMG kind of light machine gun. Pierce, which is a sniper rifle-ish kind of thing. And charge, I never used. I use charge actually a lot after I okay. had gotten it near the end. And it's actually a rocket launcher. You oh, can actually cool, charge cool. it up to fire and take out multiple enemies in the game. And this is one of the weapons that really, really helped me get through it. However, the biggest drawback to using this weapon is the friendly fire. If there's a wall or anything near you, <laughs> it's going to hit that wall. You cannot fire this in tight spaces, and it will do significant damage to you as well. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that because it's very easy to kill yourself in this game. Yes. Uh, but we'll get to that. I wanted to add, there's no ammo in the game. The gun just recharges itself, mm-hmm. which adds an element of timing and strategy to the game because... You have this pistol that you can change and you can upgrade with mods, right? So you collect mods throughout the game and these are these little upgrades to the gun and certain mods only work on specific forms of the gun. Other ones are just like a damage buff. So you can just put that on. Or extra bullets. Right. Or faster reload. And you're not reloading. They just kind of recharge, I guess is the right word. Mm -hmm. So these mods... I like them a lot, but there's one major problem with them, Rich, and you know, I know you're going to agree with me on this. You can only hold 24, and they, you just get them everywhere. So many times during the game, you have to stop because your mods are loaded, and you can see in the menu, and it's like, gosh dang it, 24 out of 24, and you can't pick up the next one. So you have to go in and scrap them for experience points, which is kind of cool. I like that system, that the ones you don't yeah. use, you can scrap for experience. But I really wish that there was some kind of function because these mods have levels on them based on how rare they are and how rare they are usually denotes how good they are, right? How powerful the percentage of speed of reload or whatever is higher on the rarer ones. So I actually wish there was kind of a function like scrap everything that was level one or something like that just to make it go easier because it takes you like five to ten minutes just poking around reading each one because you don't want to scrap the wrong one by accident. So as you play through the game and level up your character, you can add up to three mods to a weapon. So towards the end of the game, you can get pretty powerful on these weapons. You can hold two forms at a time and switch back and forth with them by using on PlayStation, it's the square button. It's pretty cool. You can like shoot rapid fire with a pistol and then just tap the square button and you change to a different form like the pierce and you can charge up the pierce attack and use that as well. So were you rocking two forms at any given time or did you lean on one in a battle or were you hot swapping in battle? Yeah. I mean, I usually leaned on two forms. I think there were three forms that I stuck with throughout the entire game. My favorite was the grip, which is the standard pistol. That's the one I use the most seemed to do quite a bit of damage, had the smaller reticle, so you had to be a little more precise with it. But as I got to playing the game more, I got more used to it. I used the Shatter, which was the shotgun, quite a lot. There are some explosive enemies in this game that charge you, and the shotgun is a really good way to take them out while you're backing up, and they will explode in front of you. It takes maybe one or two shots from the shotgun, and it's just a really quick way to deal with them. And then, as I mentioned before, the charge weapon, I got into the game where I was firing that from a long distance when enemies would pop up and take out a large group of them 
when I was in an open area, because as I mentioned before, you really had to watch your friendly fire. And that's the, kind of the one thing about this game, and the reason I use the grip so much, is because you are confined in this game most of the time, and you really have to keep running around to avoid being hit. It's not a game like the Far Cry series, where you can just sit behind something and hide and recharge your health. There's no health recharge in this game, so you really, really have to keep running. Yes, <laughs> this is the game is definitely designed to keep you moving at all times. Yeah. Uh, so I'll tell you, I use the grip. Like you said, it's the first gun you have. It's the pistol. And I also used Pierce because our friend Wild Bill 52 <laughs> was kind of coaching us through this game because of our frustration levels with it. And he said, you got to use the Pierce because it takes care of enemies that dodge projectiles. And we'll get yes. to that when we get to the special abilities. But the thing about Pierce is you have to charge up your shot. So there's an added challenge where you have to hold down the trigger for, I don't know what it is, two seconds before you can actually shoot. Mm -hmm. And you can't hold it for too long because otherwise the shot just goes off without your control over it. So if yeah, you hold it too long... charges the same way. Oh, okay. So that makes sense. But Pierce is good for doing a lot of damage if you can land the shot. So... In a way, it's more challenging because you have to be more accurate and time it right. But the payoff for me was worth it because by the end of the game, when I upgraded Pierce, I was like one-shotting a lot of the enemies with it. So that was good advice from Bill. Very helpful. I also tried the spin, but I hardly used it. I just said, well, yeah. I don't want to play the whole game and only use one gun. So I better try <laughs> one of the other ones. So I got spin. It was kind of cool. But by then I was late in the game. I was leaning hard on Pierce and I just said, oh, that's like a machine gun. Cool. Like I didn't do much with it. Yeah. But yeah, I liked how they did something creative with the gun mechanics, which mm -hmm. is having this like morphing sci-fi gun that's like animated and it looks like it's transforming when you use it. Mm -hmm. So I think that was pretty cool and creative. So let's throw on the next layer of the combat, which is what in my opinion, makes this game very special, and that's the abilities. So you're running around shooting, now add another layer of abilities to that. So first one you can get is that you can launch, and this is where telekinesis comes in, right? So you actually can pick up with your mind or whatever, anything really, any piece of debris, office furniture, water coolers, you know, <laughs> Chairs, desks, lamps, anything that's in the environment, seemingly, you can pick up and launch at the enemies using telekinesis. This is a really cool first impression that they make with the combat because I think it's really impactful. It works really well. There's an auto-aim element to it, so you don't have to be super accurate with the launch power where you do with the gun, right? So you have to, right. to be good and accurate with the gun. With the launch power, there's a very generous auto-aim where you just have to be kind of in the vicinity of the enemy you want to hit, and then a target reticle appears on it, and you know you're going to hit it. It hits every time. So when I first started the game, I was like, okay, this is cool. This is where it kind of goes beyond just being a normal third-person cover shooter. The other one little cool thing that I loved about the launch is that sometimes when you pulled something towards you, 
to launch it, it would hit the enemy in the back and it did about as much damage as it would if you were launching it straight at them. So you could get two hits on an enemy by launching something towards yourself and then back at them. I had the launch fully upgraded by the end of the game and I was one-shotting everything. And then some of the things I was just like, you know, pulling a huge rock towards a guy and it was just knocking him out and then I'd hurl it at another guy. It's very satisfying. I really love the launch mechanic. Yeah, it's probably my favorite of the game as well. And another thing we should probably mention is that you can actually pull debris back towards you and it doesn't have to go all the way to your hand. If you're already in the vicinity of someone and aiming, you can release it mid-pullback and take them out even quicker. Kind of the drawback to it, just like the gun that runs out of bullets, you also have an energy bar where you can run out of energy to do the launch and your other special abilities, and you have to wait for that to recharge before you can use it again. Yep. So we mentioned you have a gun that recharges automatically, and then you have these special powers that recharge automatically. So there's this dynamic in combat. And Rich mentioned you got to run around like crazy. You can't stand still or you're going to get killed. So the combat is very frantic because you're running around, shooting, shooting, shooting. You run out of bullets. The bullets are recharging. And then you start launching, launching, launching. (laughs) And then you run out of energy. Then you go back to the gun and so forth. If you're good at it or if you're better than I was at it, you're probably shooting a little bit, launching something. And actually, I was doing a bit of this, like being more strategic, launching, then shooting, then launching something else and shooting a little bit more, like not just wiping out all the bullets, then wiping out all the energy, rinse and repeat. So there's a little more nuance and dynamics to it as I got better at the game later on. So one of the other powers was seize, which is when you get an enemy down to about a quarter of their health or maybe a little bit less, you can hold down the square button and take control of that enemy. You don't actually take control in a sense that you can control them. They just fight on your side and they fight the enemies with you. I use this a lot, but I found that I used it more not because I thought these enemies could help me, but in a sense that, oh, why don't I just take them over because... It'd be cool to just see them running around shooting the bad guys rather than just killing them. You know what I mean? Like they didn't do a ton of damage, but actually what their function was, was to kind of take the heat off of you because the enemies would then start shooting them. So it was almost more like a decoy mechanic than anything else. So did you use the C's a lot? It's funny, man. You actually get the C's through a side quest and it's not part of the main story. And I did a lot of the side quests in this game, but I did not do the side quest for the siege. So I never got to use that ability, which was unfortunate. I had watched some playthrough videos during my time with this game, and I saw people using it. I thought it was really, really cool. So, uh, yeah, it's something I definitely missed out on. Okay. Next, we have Levitate, which to me is one of the coolest things about this game. I think everybody has like flying dreams, right? We all have dreams that we can fly. I'm a long distance runner, so I like running and I have a recurring dream that I can just kind of jump as I'm running and just float through the air. And this levitate power really was like a visualization of what I dream about a lot. And it was really, really cool to see. And I love the way that Jessie, the character, is animated as she's floating around. Her limbs are kind of 
just wavering about as she's floating around. She doesn't fly like Superman with her arms up, you know, flying through the air with the greatest of ease. I feel like they did a good job animating what a person would be like if they all of a sudden started, <laughs> had the ability to float up in the air, you know? Um, yeah. So I thought this was very cool mechanic and it made the fantastical elements of the game kind of front and center because it turned it from just running around taking cover. Yeah, telekinesis launch, but that's almost like, you know, just another projectile weapon, right? But then when you can actually float up in the air and hover above the battlefield, it added a whole nother layer of depth to the combat and to the strategy of everything. And also, I just loved it because, you know, I have this <laughs> I have this dream, literally and figuratively, of short distance flight. So what did you think of the levitation power? You know, for the levitation, I used it more as a platforming mechanic than I used in combat. I didn't like it as a combat mechanic. Oh, and okay. I think a lot of the reason is, is because... I'm more of a newcomer to third-person shooters, and it's just something else to have to control and something else to have to figure out. I really did not use it in combat. It looked cool. I tried it out a few times, and uh, one of the mechanics that we should probably talk about is the evade mechanic that you can use. One of the problems with flying was that you also had to hit the evade button because you couldn't really fly fast enough to dodge all of the bullets like you could when you were on the ground. So... Uh, for me, it's just something that I did not use a lot of. My MO was just trying to get close and use weapons as well as using the launch technique, which as a gamer who doesn't play a lot of modern games, the launch was just a breath of fresh air and being able to swap that in and out with your guns. Yeah, it was a great mechanic for, I would say, beginning players. Okay. The last ability we have to talk about is one that I hardly use, which is the yeah. shield ability. <laughs> yeah, so this one you use telekinesis again to kind of create a field of debris around yourself that is supposed to be a shield. The problem with this one is I didn't think it was hugely functional in a sense that in a game where you're supposed to run around like a frantic crazy person shooting and launching and everything. I didn't find it comfortable to just kind of stop and raise up a shield for even a few seconds. Like I'd rather just take the damage, try to dodge out of the way, try and kill the enemy before they can kill me kind of thing. I only used it functionally in the game like three or four times. Yeah, it's not one that I use in the game at all functionally. One of the upgrades that you can do through the upgrade tree is you can pull up the shield and then you can also launch the shield. And so that was something I thought, well, this would be kind of cool. Maybe I'll use it more if I pick that up. And nah, it didn't work out. I maybe tried it out one or two times. And like you said, this is the kind of game where it's not beneficial to stay still. It's more beneficial to run around because you don't regain energy in this game. So the shield really serves no practical purpose in the game, in my opinion. Can you clarify when you say you don't regain energy, you mean health, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not energy health. Right, right. So you mentioned the skill tree. Let's talk about that a little bit. So all the abilities I just mentioned, there's a, a leveling system where as you kill enemies, you get these, what are they called? I call them experience in my head. Ability points is what okay. they're called. So think. you get these yeah. ability points. These ability points are what you use to 
activate your points on the skill tree. Now, this is another piece of advice I got from our good friend Bill, who had completed the game and was noting our frustrations with it. He said, you got to upgrade your health as much as you can. Your health bar needs to be upgraded. I even posted a video on Twitter and he said, your health bar looks too short. Get more health. (laughs) So um, I actually found that my skill tree was very lopsided. So I upgraded the health all the way. There's a melee attack we should mention. You can use a triangle button to melee. I never use melee in the game ever. And I regretted upgrading the melee to level one (laughs) because it was a waste of an upgrade. And then I upgraded the launch ability all the way. The most powerful you can get is plus 75 damage on your launch, and this is just devastating to everything. So if you have a good launch cost to your energy and then a higher energy, like if you buff everything the right way, your launch can just run the table on almost every kind of enemy. So as Rich mentioned as well, there's all these little like side paths you can upgrade. One of the ones I did, Rich, that I didn't use ever was you can do like a stomp attack with the levitate. So you'd levitate up and then you click the right stick and you do this like ground smashing attack. The problem is I found it very hard to aim and I didn't think it did enough damage for how hard it was to aim. And as you know, in this game, not all the time, but a lot of the time you're fighting on these platforms with bottomless pits all around them. and. Yes. Some of the time when I tried to use that, I just ended up launching myself into a bottomless pit and killing myself. So that was kind of a a worthless upgrade for me. I didn't bother upgrading the shield. I didn't bother upgrading the seize power. I just went all in on health, launch, and levitate for my skill tree. How did you approach it? Well, these type of games I'm horrible at. So the first thing I look at always is upgrading my health. Yeah. So, so yeah, I blasted that one out. Also upgraded my launch ability to the fullest because like you said, it can be a really, really destructive power. The melee, I actually upgraded that a few and I use that quite a bit. Oh, good. Especially in the boss battles, you get a lot of ads and so a lot of times they would maybe sneak up behind you and get close. So you could just hit triangle to melee. And for some of the weaker ones, you could take them out in one hit or recharge it for a second and take them out with the second hit. So I actually like that quite a lot because I always found myself close to enemies, especially in big rooms where I couldn't really hide behind a lot of stuff and just fire away. But uh yeah, as far as the levitation, I did not upgrade any of that my thought with that was why should i upgrade my levitation to last longer because why would they make a game where i couldn't get to certain places unless my levitation feature was longer they have to make the game where you can actually finish it without having to upgrade those types of things so i I really didn't see any need in that and for the same reason i didn't upgrade the ground stomp either So yeah, I think you and I had somewhat similar builds, but I think mine probably leaned a lot more toward melee, whereas yours leaned a lot more toward the levitation ability that you enjoyed. Cool.
there's a bunch of other gameplay stuff to get to, but I just want to kind of throw in that I did enjoy, and I'm going to have some severe criticisms of this game, but I got to say the combat system, when I wasn't getting my ass handed to me, which was a ton, (laughs) but at the times, the rare times I wasn't, I had a, a lot of fun with this combat system. It's very dynamic. As you can see, we had different play styles. It's accommodating to different play styles. It's accommodating to different strengths. Just all the different combinations of things you could do with the different types of guns and different types of abilities. I got to say, one of the strong points of this game in general is the combat system. I don't know if you agree with that, Rich, but what's your take on that? I think that's one of the selling points of this game. Yeah, I do agree with that to a certain extent. For me, one of the tougher parts of the game, and probably the toughest part of the game, was the beginning of the game. And I feel like the combat system early on in the game is fairly rigid and very tough from the beginning. But once you get over that hump, once you can start upgrading your weapons, and once you get more abilities, the game gets a lot easier. And I wasn't the only one to sort of note this. I think I saw it a lot on the forum that people just couldn't really get into the game that much at first. I think it had a little bit to do with the story, but I also feel like it had an initial difficulty that was very, very frustrating, especially to someone who's not a very seasoned player. But again... Once I got over that hump, I really, really started enjoying the combat, and especially when I got the launch ability. I think that's where things kind of turned around, you know? Yeah, totally. And the kind of difficulty spikes in this game, to me, they were really wild. Like you really hit a <laughs> like you just said, you really hit a wall right in the beginning of the game. Then you get a little bit better upgrades, and it becomes easier for the next hour or whatever. Then you hit another huge wall, and it gets really hard for a long time. Like the difficulty is very streaky and inconsistent, I would say, in the game. Um, yeah, I think I even said on Twitter, after I beat the game, I'm glad I stuck with this game and I was able to beat it because at one point when I first started the game, I put it down for three days and didn't touch it because I was so frustrated wow. and just you know played another game. So, yeah, I think that says a lot about this game and maybe why some people, like myself, probably couldn't get into it initially but if it weren't for this playthrough, I don't know that this is a game I would have actually finished. And you know, in those first three days, I was like, yeah, I think this is a game I'm going to sell back quickly so I can get you know the most money out of it right now. But um, yeah, I don't really have that opinion anymore. Cool. Well, let's go into some of the enemy types because I've seen this as both something that gets praised for the game, but also criticized. So there's split opinion on the amount of enemies and what they do. Yeah. So... You have normal like troopers. Most of these enemies shoot or throw stuff at you. And then Rich said there's the exploding enemies who basically just charge at you and explode. They look more like xenomorphs than humans. (laughs) There's flying enemies. There's enemies with shields. So they have a supplemental life bar, so to speak, that you have to knock out their shield before you start chipping away at their health. And then about two or three hours into the game, they introduce this thing that's like a healing orb. And it's this big red orb that kind of darts around the area that the battle is taking place in. And you have to take that out because it heals the other enemies. And if they couldn't make the game frustrating enough, it's like running around chasing this orb 
the only thing that makes me do is, okay, I get into a battle. The first thing I got to do is take out the orb, which I get it. I guess it's kind of a cool mechanic. I guess I'm a little bit conflicted on it because it was just like, oh, damn, there's an orb here. All right. Got to take out the orb rather than just, oh, I want to get this guy in the corner first. I want to get this guy over here and developing some kind of strategy or plan for a battle. It's like, got to get the orb first before you can actually do anything, right? Yeah, I mean, on a lot of occasions for me, it was about kind of scouting what enemies were in a certain area. If I saw some like low-level enemies or just troopers, I knew that I could use the launch ability, hit them, and just follow up with my gun and take them out before they were able to heal again. So in that fashion, I didn't always go for the orb first, but the higher grade enemies, you definitely had to take that orb out before you could take them down, no doubt. Yeah, and there are these, I would call them heavies. They're like these body armor dudes, and I called one of them the grenade spammer. Yes. And then there's another one that has a heavy machine gun that will just mow you down. I got to tell you, Rich, I I had a love-hate relationship with these guys. <laughs> this was one of the things where the levitation power really came in handy because you can't get grenades spammed when you're up in the air. Yeah. And actually, it was like super satisfying encountering one of those guys after getting just buried in grenades so many times to be able to levitate up above him and throw his grenades back at him was mm-hmm. super, super satisfying. <laughs> but those guys were such a pain in the butt. And actually, <laughs> the last time I played the game, which was this morning to kind of just refresh myself on the controls and everything before we did this recording, my last death in the game was with a grenade spammer guy. <laughs> so it's a fitting way for me to end the game because of my least favorite enemy. Although I liked, you know, I liked the element of heavy. They weren't even mini bosses, you know. I would just mm-hmm. call them brutes or whatever word you want to use for them. So were they the bane of your existence as well? Yeah, they were pretty annoying. <laughs> it took a lot to take them down. But thank goodness for evade. But you know, in some of the platforms, like you mentioned, you know, you could evade grenade and you would just go off the end. So you really had to be cognizant of where you were on the map. And a lot of times it was just me evading like backwards because you can actually hear the grenades and about when they're going to go off. It's not like a grenade launcher where you fire it and it automatically explodes when it touches something. So I did appreciate that element to it because if it were the other way around, it would be pretty much impossible to take them out. So, uh, I mean, it was fine. I didn't mind it so much, but I thought compared to many of the other enemies, the heavies were just maybe a little bit too heavy at times. <laughs> I wish I could have taken them down a lot quicker and uh, just seemed quite arduous. Yeah, almost like the big daddies from Bioshock. Right. Like not quite to that extent, but almost like, oh man, this is going to take a couple minutes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Bioshock, that is the game that I couldn't remember before where I was reading all of the extra material Okay, because you know, I was so interested in it. That was the game that I was thinking of. Good. Yeah. I don't have to wipe my ass next time, so that's good. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the bosses while we're on the enemies. So one of the things that I would criticize the game for, and I've seen many people do this as well, is that the best bosses in the game, and you could argue all the bosses that are actual bosses and not just common enemies with names attached to them, are optional. Isn't that strange? Like, all the best bosses are optional content and side missions. 
And I wonder, Rich, like, did you go after these? Did you beat any of them? One of the bosses you encounter in this story missions is one of these heavy grenade spammers. Then one of them is a different type of enemy that makes the shield that we talked about that you can get. So they make a shield that they, you know, have a tornado of debris around them and you have to disrupt that before you can shoot at them. But then Mm -hmm. after you beat that boss, it just becomes a common enemy of the game. So it makes it kind of not special. Whereas on the other side of the coin, you have, like, did you do the refrigerator mission? <laughs> yeah, I did do the refrigerator mission. I attempted it several times, but I, I couldn't beat it. But I, it's like the uh, the giant one-eyed worm, right? Yeah, so that's, I'm glad you at <laughs> least encountered it so you know what I'm talking about. And you can definitely give your opinion on this. But, like, I just don't understand and maybe there was a reason for it. But that should have been a boss in the game because that encounter right. was awesome. And I'll tell you, I was frustrated as hell. It took me like 15 attempts. And we should mention, we talked about AP points. One of the ways this game is especially punishing is that when you die, you lose AP points. So these Mm -hmm. experience type points that you're trying to earn and rack up by killing enemies to get upgrades, when you die, it actually takes away a good portion of them. 10%. Yeah. So... If you're at a very hard boss and you die a bunch of times, you can get wiped out for those AP points and it can be very demoralizing, let me tell you. Yeah. But uh, I persevered. I beat this boss. It's this huge towering thing with one eye that the eye has a shield on it and the shield opens up and you blast away at the eye and then it shoots these orbs at you that like damage the environment. And then it has these huge arms that come down and put holes in the ground that you fall into and die. And there's so many things about it that are super frustrating. But on the other hand, it was just an awesome boss battle and it was really satisfying to beat it, especially at the end in its final like phase, let's say, the shield around its eyeball stops opening up and I'm like, oh my God, how do I damage it? Like I'm I'm on my last sliver of life. I'm just going to die and I can't even damage it. But it turns out there's like a little blind spot on the shield of the eyeball and you have to shoot that. And it's like, oh, I got him. I got him. I got him. So it's like... <laughs> yeah, I think that's a battle where levitation really works in your favor because of the holes in the ground. I just kept falling in the hole. So it was extremely frustrating for me. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I could see you doing a lot better in that battle than I did. <laughs> well, I think it just goes to the very strange design choice that they took these awesome boss battles. And I only did one other one, which was the anchor. Did you do that one? I didn't, but I watched a video on the anchor. Yeah, so that one was really cool. It's in the area with all the clocks, and it spits mm-hmm. clocks at you, and it turns into this like Pac-Man thing where you have to shoot its weak spot in the middle of the mouth, so to speak, mm-hmm. and you have to fly around these platforms, and that was one of the areas where the environment was very dreamlike and huge in this expansive way, but also confined, and you had these four platforms you had to run around on. And again, this should have been a mandatory boss battle in the story. I don't know, man. I I don't know why you would design these awesome fights and then just make them totally missable like side content or side quests that, you know, not everybody will experience. It's such a weird design choice. 
Yeah, I totally agree. If you play Control, seek out those bosses. They're worth it. They're pretty awesome. If you just go through the vanilla story, you're just going to be fighting common enemies as bosses. So just know that going into it. Yeah. All right. So next, let's talk about the other big criticism that I have. I keep saying the other as if there's only two. Let, yeah, let's I know talk what this about... is, and I am 100% <laughs> behind this. Wow. It's pretty much the first Remedy game that wasn't straight up linear. Now, Alan Wake had a little bit of exploration, and you could argue Quantum Break, and to whatever extent, like... The games aren't Super Mario Brothers linear point A to point B, but there's no getting lost. There's no like wide exploration in Remedy games. But Control, even though the plot is linear and you could go from point to point, it's like this weird kind of Metroid-ish game where the oldest house is like this maze. It's like a really hard to traverse environment where finding your way around can be very challenging and to me frustrating. And I know I'm not the only one because I read <laughs> I read some guides. I had to look up some things and some of them were very jokey about, oh, to find this, first you have to run around in circles for 10 minutes and then, you know, go over <laughs> here. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly what I've been doing. Ha ha ha. So I would argue that the map doesn't really help. Like it gives you a good idea where you are in general and where you need to go, yeah. but then it doesn't show you verticality in a good way. So we should mention there's a lot of stairs, there's a lot of windows and upper floors and lower floors, sometimes multiple four, five or six floors plus, and the map is just inadequate for what it is. Yeah, it is. And you're looking at the map if you're on a certain level that will be highlighted, but the other levels will just be darked out. But it really doesn't help you in a sense of where you're going or how you get to these different places. So I totally agree, man. It was really, really frustrating to me. And it made me thankful for a game like Fable that had the <laughs> like the little trail where it would oh, lead man. places. I would have loved that in this game. It would have been very useful. And I think the other thing we have to talk about... To get to certain places, you would have a prompt in your upper left corner that would say, okay, go to central maintenance and then take that to the rock quarry or whatever it was. But um, to get to these places, you would have to follow signs. And the signs were just so off a lot of the times. I don't understand it. It would say, okay, this way to here. But then you would go through that door and you would be in another area and it would just be confusing. Okay, am I supposed to keep going through this area to get to where I'm going or did I choose the wrong path? And so yeah, it was completely frustrating to me. And I think you had some issues with it too, right? Yeah, the signage. I mean, it's useful in a lot of ways, but it does just kind of point you in a general direction and sometimes isn't specific enough. So helpful, but not as helpful as I wish it was, just like the map. One thing that I found kind of cool, and I mentioned this on the forum, is that when you have the map up, you're still playing the game. It doesn't pause the game. So you can run around and watch or point yeah. or move around the map, which I noted it reminded me of the original Doom. Mm -hmm. um, the downside to that is every time I pulled the map up, probably 90% of the time I pulled the map up, I hit the cross button to take the map off the screen. <laughs> but that just made my character jump. And I was like, oh, I forgot. You got to press up on the D-pad to turn the map off, which is yeah. the same thing you use to turn it on. So uh, that was kind of funny and just the most mild of frustrations. <laughs> so, Yeah, I would say like getting around in this game, you were also 
charged with remembering where certain areas were. It was sort of this Metroidvania type thing where at some point you were supposed to see a sign that was labeled, okay, this is the area that I'm going to have to come back to at another point in the game. And uh, to me, it was just really, really frustrating. And I'm not going to lie, I had to go to YouTube and watch some walkthroughs to determine where I needed to go next. Now, I would spend about 15 to 30 minutes trying to figure out where I needed to go. But I'm not just going to sit there and spend my wheels and waste my time. And so I would look up these walkthroughs, get to the place where I needed to be, and immediately cut off the walkthrough and just play it from there. But I swear, I had to do it over 10 times in this game. And so... I think that says a lot about the mapping of this game and the signage and why a lot of people have a problem with this game. Yeah, it's a common criticism for sure. Another element in the game is a little bit of light puzzle solving. And there's this recurring puzzle that involves the parts of a cube shape. And this Mm, appears in many different iterations. A lot of times it's on a computer screen of some sort. And you have to match what's on the computer screen to a note that's like taped to the computer screen. So you press the face buttons and it moves around the, let's say, the shading or the patterns on this cube and you have to get it to match. What I found was there's usually three options, like the top corner, the left corner and the right corner. You can get two of them right. And then the third one, you can just spam the button until it locks in, right? Yeah. So I wrote here in the notes, light puzzle solving, because I felt like that's what it was. Like, I think it's worth mentioning, but it's definitely not a major part of the game. It's just to unlock a couple of doors. The one that I found a little bit of frustration with was the punch card puzzle, where you're in this. I love that. Oh, okay, cool. Well, you're in this room with five computer terminals and you have to find five punch cards and then put a punch card in each terminal in the correct order. And this was one that I had to look up. So I know that there's whiteboards with the Mm -hmm. solution on them. Is that all it was? You know what happened to me was I, I didn't realize until after I looked at a YouTube walkthrough that the terminals were numbered. So I didn't see that this was number one, number two, number three, and so on. I was just running around like, all right, I don't get this. Like, I'll just look it up. (laughs) So there's these three whiteboards and you just have to use logic and compare all three of them together. And then that with your number terminals, it just kind of goes from left to right. But there's one that like has like two of them swapped out with an arrow. There's some that are omitted and so you just have to sort of use logic as far as placing where they all go and I'm just such a big fan of stuff like that because I'm just kind of like I don't know if this is right or not I'm doing it and that's sort of my intuition and then I figure it out and man I I just get so psyched about stuff like that I love logic puzzles so uh, for me that was a really fun puzzle but I can see how it would be frustrating if you miss like one little key part like you said as far as the terminals being numbered you know It's awesome, Rich, bringing the big brain energy to the show. (laughs) I love it. So yeah, we're covering a lot of everything on the gameplay. There's a ton going on. I think we're doing well covering it. So let's get to another one of my major (laughs) criticisms of this game. (laughs) This is under gameplay, but this is just a general thing, but it affects the gameplay in a major way. And that is there is no difficulty setting to adjust in this game and that is not the history of remedy every one of their games even if it was unlockable has difficulty selections 
maybe they're trying to convert some Souls fans over to playing their games. Well, that could be. I read an article that made a pretty good case that this is like a Souls wannabe because the control points are kind of like the bonfires kind of thing. Bonfires, but yeah. yeah, I don't know enough about Souls to really make a informed comment on that. But I can make an informed comment on Remedy's history of game design. They always have difficulty settings to select. And in this game, there isn't one. And again, I kind of don't get it. I get that people like a challenge and some people want to play difficult games. But for me, you know, not all my games have to be cupcakes and so easy they put you to sleep kind of easy. I don't mind a challenge, but this game, as we talked about, had some incredible difficulty spikes and was super, super frustrating. And I had it just like you, Rich, where I was rage quitting for like a couple days at a time and I didn't want to go back and play the game. I don't know. I feel like I would have dialed this game down to easy in the first hour and been fine with it and probably had a much better time. Again, the gameplay is so similar to Quantum Break, but Quantum Break Sure, it had its frustrating moments, and I think I played it on the normal difficulty. You know, Quantum Break is actually known as an easy game, and people recommend that you play it on hard, but I played it on normal, had a great old time with it, and I wish Control was like that. I would have liked it a lot more if I was able to play it on an easier setting. So I think you probably feel similar. Absolutely. I'm usually the type of person that always starts out on normal, and I love playing games on the normal level, but having the choice, this is the type of game that I would have dialed back and gotten a lot more enjoyment out of had I been able to do that. Like you said, there's these difficulty spikes, especially some of the boss battles, that are just extremely frustrating, one of which it took me over three hours to beat. And, you know, that was rather frustrating. I didn't get to a point with that boss that I wanted to quit. I just wanted to keep doing it. I knew I could do it. But spending three hours on a boss, that's just not how most people want to spend their time when they're trying to escape the real world playing a video game, you know? Yeah, definitely. We should also mention there's no post-game. I can't remember all the other Remedy games, but there's no new game plus. Also, there's only one save slot. So, you know, you can't save over, you know, and you can't experiment with your gameplay because... There's only one save and it auto saves. Um, and if you replay a chapter, you can select the chapter, but then it overwrites your save with that progress. So very limiting in a lot of ways. And I guess that allowed the designers to create this game and not have to worry about adjusting that kind of stuff. And it allowed them to branch out into more systems. But uh, for me, it was to the detriment of my overall enjoyment of the game. So I totally agree. Before we move on, I wanted to read a post from one of our members who played this month. We've mentioned him a few times on the show already, Bill, and he responded, put in another few hours last night. I think I'm on the fifth story mission. I will say the game really opens up when you get a few abilities. Reminds me of Sunset Overdrive in that way. The gunplay is good, not great, but the abilities are where this game shines. The standard service weapon form grip is my most used. I tried the shotgun once, but I wasn't a big fan. Unlock Pierce last night, which is the sniper type, and it's really good, but I wish it had more zoom. I guess that's what mods are for. I was dying quite a bit early on because I was trying to stay back and pick enemies off, but that doesn't work so great in this game. Just like Doom, the game has no auto-regenerating health and wants you to pick up the health packs that enemies drop. Once you get dodge and shield, combat becomes less anxiety-inducing. 
So I think this is a good quote by Bill, who Sean mentioned kind of guided us through the game, and it seems like he had some of the same frustrations and liked a lot of the same things that we did as well. Yeah, and he brings up a really good point about the health regen, which I forgot to mention. There's no health items in the game. You get your health from these little blue dots that the enemies drop when you kill them. And he mentioned Doom 2016. And Rich, I wonder if you know what other game we played that I'm going to bring up that has a similar mechanic. Uh, I can't think of anything right off the top of my head. It was a game we played a long time ago, Warhammer 40K Space Marine. (laughs) Space Marine. So I love this. I think games where you get your health replenished by killing enemies is a cool mechanic. So that's one thing in this game I didn't really have too much of a complaint about. And like Bill was saying, it kind of fuels that you have to be aggressive in combat to be able to take advantage of that. And I like that he mentioned Sunset Overdrive as well, because I played that game, I think, a year or two ago when I first got my Xbox One. And I remember mentioning it on the show that that game does not want you to stand still for even a second. And that he made that connection to this game. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah, and it brings about an additional element to combat when you're low on health and maybe sort of hiding out behind something and firing, you have to make that choice as far as I just killed enemies over in that area. I can see those little blue dots over there. If I run really fast, maybe I can make it to those before I get hit. So, you know, that was kind of a fun element to the game and sort of made you fly off the seat of your pants, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So are we ready to move into graphics and then sound? Absolutely. So one of the draws of the game is the oldest house. And I think, Rich, this is kind of funny. We get to talk about architecture for the second time in our history. We talked about the Art Deco movement in our Bioshock episode. And now we get to talk about brutalist architecture. This is an architectural style that is kind of just industrial and big and blocky. A lot of squares, a lot of sharp angles. A lot of cement. A lot of cement. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a pretty cool style, but it's designed to, at least in the game, in my opinion, it's designed to kind of make you uncomfortable and a little bit off kilter and definitely like it's not cozy. Hence, the name is Brutalist. So that's the style of the oldest house. And then there are elements of it that you get thrown into these more abstract areas that have these like more spiral shapes. So they do kind of loosen up on the brutalist side of things when you go into the more paranormal areas. But in general, the oldest house is a cold and unforgiving place. (laughs) And like I said, it's designed to make you feel uncomfortable. And it all happens within this backdrop of like, so I wrote here 1960s, but I've heard other people say 1980s. So I'm not sure exactly if it's noted in any of the side content or the collectibles, like what exact year it's supposed to be. But I like the take that it's like a Cold War era technology wise and furniture wise and just the aesthetic of the offices and the clothing and stuff like that. It's like kind of that retro future tech to me, again, it struck me as 1960s, but I've heard other people refer to it as 80s. Yeah, I think it basically started in the 50s post-war. 
it was more of a European type of architecture, and then it kind of made its way over here. And so I think you're right about that, is that it's got that 1960s feel, but in context of maybe the U.S., you're looking more like the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Well, then it all makes sense to a, <laughs> to a certain degree. Um yeah, I was actually a fan of the the uniforms and costumes of the characters. And we should mention that Jesse, as your main character, you have your choice of a few costumes that get unlocked throughout the game. And there was also one. I bought the game new, so I had some day one DLC or something that yeah. was a Tron, almost, almost like a Tron bodysuit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so the costumes are kind of cool because, again, they have that retro sci-fi the NPCs in the game and your quest givers, like the side characters, have to wear these devices that protect them from being taken over by the hiss and becoming hiss. So they have these weird packs like strapped to them. And then the soldiers have these like helmets with visors and different kind of jumpsuits that look like almost like cosmonauts from the 60s kind of thing. So I think the like costuming and wardrobe choices were really well done. I think they were kind of a high point. Did you notice any of that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I really liked is if you would go to like the maintenance section and then you would go to a more military section, like the Rangers, they were all in different types of outfits. And if you kind of follow along with the story of the game, there's a little bit of friction between those two parties. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it was it was really interesting and I thought really well done, too. And I also really like the ideas of the, uh, you know, the packs that would keep them from becoming mind control. That was a good touch. One of the other things I really liked about the game was just the presentation. And what I mean by that is there's a really cool effect that they do whenever you enter a new area that you discover on the map. There's a big bass drop and then it in this huge like sans serif font uh, across the entire screen, it'll say like dead letter department. And it's like, yeah. whoa, I'm in a new area. Yeah, I took a snapshot of the font and I was like, the font in this game is incredible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I meant it too. It's awesome. Yeah, it looks really neat, and I got a kick out of it every time. It never failed to feel satisfying and cool-looking, so I definitely needed to highlight that. Another thing, too, I thought the menus were pretty elegant and kind of minimalist. There's not a huge amount of depth to the point where the upgrade system would be confusing. For whatever my complaints were about like the mod systems or whatever... I found that everything was pretty easy to find, pretty nice looking. It wasn't over cluttered and it just matched the aesthetic of the game in general. I don't know if you have any comments on that, Rich. No, I thought the menu system was fine. It was fairly easy to use once you kind of figured out things. You could have like personal mods as well and you could upgrade those by putting points in your abilities and things of that nature. It took me a little while to figure that out. It's one of those things where if you just put enough time into it and just mess around with it, it's fairly simple. Yeah. So one of the other things that I really feel like we have to mention regarding the graphics and environments is the destructible nature of almost everything in the game so yeah we mentioned that a lot of the powers like the launch power like you can launch items that are just around you or you will find that you're ripping out huge pieces of the wall or like columns that are around you when you do the shield ability you are literally ripping the floor up 
and there's like holes where the floor used to be. It's really satisfying to me It's and to many other people as well. It's one of the highlights of the graphics is the destructibility of the environment along with the nature of the explosions in the game, the explosion tech or whatever you want to call it, is really top notch in this game. Everything that explodes is so colorful. There's a lot of yellows and reds and oranges. And it's not just like Call of Duty brown and no knock on that stuff. I love it too. But like they did something here where they just made everything colorful. It almost reminds me of like you know, one of those like promotional videos where they're just like spraying colored fog everywhere or glitter or something, you know what I mean? And uh, I think that was like a really big draw of the graphics in a way that kind of contrasts against that all concrete, all sharp angles, brutalist architecture was having these colorful battles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. The attention to detail in this game graphically is probably one of the best features of this game. So you have a PlayStation 4 Pro, right? No, I don't have a Pro model. I've just got the uh, regular one terabyte, the gold edition. So there's tons of complaints, Rich, about the performance of the PS4 version. And Mm -hmm. I happen to have a Pro, and I've said it many, many times on the show, I'm not a frame rate person. I really don't notice if the frame rate drops unless it like really chugs to like slideshow levels. So I just wanted to note that there were a lot of complaints about the performance of this game in my research. But in my experience, in my playthrough... I really didn't run into any issues. So I was curious, like I played on a pro, you're not. So did you run into any major glitches or frame rate stutters that you actually noticed or anything like that? I did. And the only time I ran into that issue is when I would pause the game and go back in and resume it for a few seconds. It would get a little bit glitchy and uh, have some very noticeable frame rate issues. But usually when I paused it, I wasn't in combat, so it wasn't a big deal and uh, didn't cause any issues for me. Let's move on to the sound and music. And this is going to be a lot of fun, Rich, because there's some interesting things going on here. But let's talk about the traditional score of the game. And again, I feel like I'll be challenged to come up with anything unique to say about it. It was good. 
It has like a sci-fi vibe to it, but it didn't rise to the level of, let's say, an oxen free or even something like the show Stranger Things where the soundtrack really got under my skin and was part of the fabric of the experience. But I didn't think it was bad. I didn't have any issues with it. Did any of it like stick out to you? I don't think any of it stuck out significantly, but I do appreciate that there was a lot of variation based on, you know, the boss battles going into the different areas inside the oldest house. But this would be another one of those instances where we say, yeah, the music was good. It was satisfying. It was a good backdrop to what you're playing. And it it just doesn't stand out as being like a phenomenal soundtrack. However, (laughs) there were some things that were not a part of the score that uh, were really awesome, right, Sean? Yeah, so we have another appearance of the Old Gods of Asgard, which is a... They're a real band in real life called Poets of the Fall, but they did music for Alan Wake, and they've been working with Remedy for years, so they did a song for the game that plays during the ashtray maze portion of the game. So, Rich, I thought this was really rad. It's a heavy rock song. It's like like cheesy in the best ways. It really gets you going, especially in this really cool part of the game where it gets really trippy and there's all these doors. The rooms are morphing as you're fighting and you got to jump around and fly around and go through different doors. It's really one of the more exciting and best parts of the game, I think. And I think this song has a lot to do with it. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. I would have really liked to have seen more instances of this type of thing in the game. However, the beauty of it is set near the end of the game, and it just kind of falls right in your lap unexpectedly. And there's something cool to be said about that as well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And now there's another song that (laughs) is (laughs) performed by the... I don't know if he actually sang it, but he's in a, the video for it. It's uh, Matthew Peretta, who was the voice of Alan Wake. He's in the game as Dr. Casper Darling, but he did not play Alan Wake. He only voiced Alan Wake, which is kind of confusing because he looks like Alan Wake, <laughs> but he only voiced Alan Wake. It's a little bit confusing, but the song Dynamite is Matthew Peretta performing this It's kind of funny because sometimes when you try to be cringy on purpose, you're just 10 times cringier, right? But in my opinion, they made this corny music video with this corny song, and it just is really endearing and funny. And I really love that song. (laughs) And it's not a bad song. It has a great hook. You know, it has cute lyrics. And yeah, like you said, it's kind of a throwback 80s party song. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I believe there's even a few keytars that show up in the music video. <laughs> right. Kind of awesome. right. <laughs> so, yeah, I really liked, um, I don't know what you call it. Like that, in that case, that's diegetic music. That's music that Jesse actually discovers as part of a puzzle in yeah. one of the Ocean View Motel segments, which there are many of these segments in the game. We should mention real quick because I've forgotten gameplay. You get thrown into the Ocean View Motel, which is some kind of memory that Jesse has to reconcile. And it has to do with the mystery of why she is there. So 
it's this recurring puzzle where each time you go through these three different rooms and you have to do something different, like set a clock to a certain time or arrange the room in a certain way. But one of the last ones in the game is you get this music video play for you. <laughs> so it's really good. It made me laugh. And it was a, a great moment of levity in a game that was frustrating me a lot of the time. So I really appreciated it. So we should also mention, you know, the voice acting is a big part of this game. And most of the actors were modeled in the game. So Jesse Faden is played by Courtney Hope. Courtney Hope was also in Quantum Break as the character Beth. Uh, she's an actress who's been in TV and soap operas for a while, but she's, you know, worked with Remedy before. I, I think she did a good job. It wasn't her fault that her character was just doing these monologues and stating really obvious things that were just happening to her. So I thought her performance was fine, if not a little bit wooden, but what was written for her wasn't that great. So I think she had an uphill battle. Yeah, I agree. And then you had Sean Dury played her brother, Dylan. James McCaffrey played the original director, Zachariah Trench. As I mentioned, Matthew Peretta, who was the voice of Alan Wake, played Dr. Casper Darling, who is this doctor who you discover in these video messages, and he tells you a little bit of the background of what's going on. Antonia Bernath played Emily Pope. Marty Salsalo played Ati, the janitor. Brig Bennett was Helen Marshall. Ronan Summers was Simon Irish. And there's others, but those were the main players I wanted to note because Remedy does this thing. It's a lot like a Quantic Dream game, right? Or Until Dawn that we played a couple of years ago, where it's the actual actors uh, modeled into the game. So I think it's just important to call them out. Again, I think what I just said about Courtney Hope, you could probably apply to everybody. I saw some people really slamming the character models and the character animations during dialogue sequences. And to a certain extent, I agree, because when you're talking to some of these NPCs, it's like talking to, you know, George Washington in the Hall of Presidents. They're just very robotic. They're just standing there. I thought the faces were modeled really well, but some of the animations could have been more exciting, I guess. I agree. I feel like a lot of times that the dialogue was very stifled and it was a hard script to work with for sure. There were these moments of dialogue where you would be talking to Polaris, which was like inner monologue and other bouts of dialogue where you're like, well, should I tell this person about this? I don't know if I should or not. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and tell them about this. And it was a bit silly in that way. And so I think the script was more of what stilted the performances than the actual actors themselves. But I love the janitor. Favorite character in the game. Yeah, Ati was definitely a highlight. He has a heavy, thick Finnish accent and sprinkles in Finnish slang into his sentences. So a lot of the times you kind of miss what he's saying, which in a good way, right? So it definitely adds a little bit of spice to what are otherwise these wooden conversations with NPCs. So I want to wrap up just one little tidbit of trivia that I found out. I didn't do this side mission. I didn't even get it. I don't know how you activate it. But our buddy Hideo Kojima has an appearance in this game as wow. the voice of an NPC who's part of a side quest. So I didn't do this quest, but I just wanted to shout that out that there's a, 
appearance by Hideo Kojima in this game. So I thought that was pretty cool. You know what side quest it was? Um, it's Doctor Something, and it's Doctor yeah. Japanese name. You know, so I don't I don't remember exactly yeah. what the name was called, but. Yeah, if you found that mission in the game, you were listening to Hideo Kojima, so that's pretty neat. Nice, I'll have to check that out. Well, I think we're at the point, Rich, where we can start talking about our final thoughts. Do you have anything from the forum? I certainly do. I picked up some thoughts, and I'm going to say that these are pretty much final thoughts. I think you, myself, and Bill are the only ones who actually finished the game, but we had a few players who made it halfway through the game and are going to continue on, and they did offer some thoughts too, so I'm going to share those. Dougley007 says, Well, I didn't have time to beat it, but what I played of it was interesting. It does get better once you can throw things around. This will be one I work on when I get the time away from the kids. (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that in the near future. And then our good friend Mr. Stubb says, I'm in a similar boat as Dougley and will try and beat this game at a later date. I think the story so far is fine enough. Kind of gives me a Between Two Souls vibe with some extra paranormal monsters thrown in. I'm just not a fan of the confusing map system and the constant feeling of where the hell do I go? I feel that the story missions would take half the time they do if the map system was more flushed out. And then finally... From our good friend, Wild Bill 52 I agree with you that it's way harder than it should be, especially early on before you have any good upgrades. Even late in the game, some of the bosses gave me a hard time, but it forced me to play around with my builds, which may have been the idea. It's hard to rank this among Remedy's other work, partially because I haven't played Quantum Break yet, but I really liked this game a lot once I got past my initial difficulties with it. Please don't turn this next comment into a PC Master Race thing, but I personally cannot imagine getting through this game on a controller. Aim assist and crosshair stickiness are a thing with controllers, and they help, but with how often I needed to make big sweeping motions with the mouse during frantic combat, I don't want to think about what it would have been like with a controller. I really enjoyed this game a lot. I'm happy to report that when the story is over, there are still lots of things to do. On top of any side missions you didn't finish before competing the main campaign, get it, finish, because Ati is from Finland and he gives you side missions and quests. Anybody? I'll see myself out. There are new missions that open up and new areas that you can explore with your new powers. That's not even considering the recently released expansion, The Foundation, which is now on my want list. So it seems like us, everybody kind of struggled with it in the beginning. Bill probably less so than a lot of us, but I think there's a lot of stuff that we can all take away from these games and a lot of enjoyment, even though you and I both have criticisms, right? Yeah, I would agree in general with everybody. If you want, I could just roll into my own final thoughts at this point. Sure. So, (laughs) you know how in December we do best of, worst of, and one of our categories is most disappointing game of the year. I think this might be one of the most disappointing games of my life. Oh, wow. It's not just that on the face of it, I hated the game because it's not even true. That's not the case. But being such a huge fan of Remedy and what I expect from Remedy and how much fun I had with Alan Wake and Quantum Break, even though at times they were challenging games, I never came even near the level of frustration that Control 
brought me. And on paper, before I played Control, I was like 100% sure that this would end up being one of my favorite games of all time. Why? Because it was a remedy game. It's sci-fi focused. It has a female protagonist played by somebody who I already like because she was in Quantum Break. It just had all the earmarks of a game that would make Sean very happy, right? So the difficulty and the traversal were the two things that made this game really hard to love for me. I was just totally blindsided by how hard this game was. And I would venture that this may be the hardest game that we've played for the podcast. It's a different kind of difficulty than something like a Shining Force, which, you know, in Shining Force, you can play an extra 30 hours and grind and you can get better. But this, like you said, Rich, you had to bang your head against a boss for three hours to beat it. There's nothing you can do. To a certain extent, you can grind and level up and maybe find some better mods, but you ain't going to change what you're up against. And you're not going to change your character in a way that is going to make anything easier for you. So I was really blindsided by the difficulty in this game. Having said that, I can't just say, oh, this game is awful. Nobody should play it because that's not true either. As I stated earlier, the combat when it's not kicking my ass, was a lot of fun. I loved floating around. I loved launching stuff. I loved the whole dynamic between launching and then shooting and then flying and then dashing and then sneaking around one enemy and then taking over another enemy. There were a lot of moments that were very exciting and dynamic and fun. And I wish that there were just like, you know, more combat and easier and that the story made a little bit of sense. That's the other thing that kind of was a letdown, was that there's no emotional payoff, there was no big reveal, and I don't need a big reveal or a big twist, but like if something was explained in a way that like looked like a twist, I think that would have served the game very well. So I gotta say, for me, this was a big disappointment. I put my copy of the game on eBay today because I'm done with it. I don't ever <laughs> wanna play it again. Having said that, I think it's just a case of this game is not for me because it's it's just too difficult. But I think people who, if you want to challenge and if you're better at video games than I am, which there's a very good chance you are, just statistically. <laughs> so um, I would say don't be put off just because I thought the game was too hard. But just know going in that it's different from Quantum Break. It's different from Alan Wake. It's not linear. There's different things about the traversal of the game. The checkpointing, we didn't even talk about. Just real quick, you have these control points that you have to unlock, and those are the only checkpoints in the game. So if you find a control point, you activate it, it auto-saves your game, and then no matter how far away from it you are when you die, that's where you checkpoint to. So that can be super, super frustrating. And that's just another thing that makes the deaths in this game like way more punitive and makes the game way harder than it needs to be. So, Rich, I'm super, super conflicted about my opinion on this game because, you know, we do this in-depth podcast and I think we did a good job, if I do say so myself, of not trashing the game along the way, even though I know we had some severe frustrations getting through it. I'm glad I beat it, but I will never play it again. And... I only recommend it in a sense that if you're up for the challenge and a little bit of frustration, 
then go for it because there are very good things about the game as we have talked about. Yeah, I agree. There are a lot of frustrating things about this game and, you know, we've pointed them out through this podcast. It's super hard from the onset. There's these random difficulty spikes that you run into. The mapping's terrible. As you mentioned, the checkpoints can be frustrating, though I think the game is checkpointed pretty well. I know some other people probably disagree with me on that, but I thought that even having to get to the enemies and some of the bosses, even to have to go like 30 seconds to make it to the boss room again, I didn't think it was too bad overall. I feel like the story is super convoluted, and there's just way too many collectibles, as we mentioned before, and too much of the story is inside of those collectibles. I would have liked a more direct story from the developers of this game, something that I wouldn't have to fish around and find. You and I aren't the type of people that love tidy and wrapped up endings. You know, there's always a good bit of mystery to things that we enjoy. But with this, I feel like there's just too much left on the table. There's too much left unanswered. And, you know, that's just another one of my major criticisms of the game. Um, Something else that was also frustrating, and this also happened in Fable 2 last month, is that there's no real final boss fight. At one point, you feel like the game's over and you get these credits. And what's funny is I took a picture of them and I put on Twitter, yay, glad I stuck with this game and finally beat it. It was really tough for me. And then after I post that, I noticed that I'm in this office and I've got this office worker's uniform on and I'm still in the game. And you have to do this whole other scenario. You have to do all this other platforming and just fighting a bunch of random enemies to get to the end, which again, I thought was a little bit too difficult. I mean, if you're going to do that, just have a victory lap, just make it a lot easier. But yeah, it took me another two hours to beat the game after I'd gotten some credits. And I hate those types of false endings. It sucks. But I did finally beat the game. And you know, that was great. This game is not a bad game. It's a really enjoyable game. It's a great third-person shooter. There's great modifications, great weapons. There's a lot of awesome gameplay elements in this game. But I think that there are just so many other things that aren't done right. And I can see why there are such conflicting opinions about this game. And I agree. I'm just in some sort of state of video game limbo, you know, as far as whether I really, really like this game or not and whether I want to sell it. So I wouldn't recommend this game to your average player. But if you have someone who's really into third-person shooters, who's really talented and good at these third-person shooters, I would say you could recommend it to someone like that. And I, I think they would probably enjoy the game. Like you, this isn't a game that I'm going to go back to. There are a lot of optional boss fights that look really cool that I would really love to do, but I can't see myself going back and playing this game anymore. I'm just kind of done with it. I think I'm just going to leave it on the shelf, and uh, I don't think it's one that I'm going to revisit in upcoming years. So for that reason, I may end up putting it on eBay as well. One of the things that I really did like about this game is that I actually found my Halloween costume for next year. <laughs> I'm not going to reveal the context of this person because I think it's one of the best parts of the game. But man, I got to go as Uncle Dr. Bones for next Halloween. Favorite character of the game. Yeah, I can't wait to see that, man. <laughs> All right, man. Let's talk about what we're going to be playing the next two months. 
All right. So in May, we'll be playing a game called Darksiders Genesis. And we will have a very special guest because the lead writer of the game at Airship Syndicate is a good friend of mine named Frank Barberi, and he has agreed to come on the show and discuss the game with us. And I'm really looking forward to that because he's an extremely talented and interesting person, and I think it's going to be an awesome show. Yeah, it's going to be really cool to have one of the people that's part of the team on a podcast. This is the first time we've ever done that, and uh, looking forward to talking with Frank, for sure. So... In June, we're doing a collaboration with another podcast on our site known as the Shoot the Core cast. And this is a group of guys who you've heard about on our show, Metal Fro and Addictive, who run a schmuck club on our site. They pick a shooter every month and play through it and then podcast on it. So what we decided to do is play the same game and merge together into a podcast. So that should be a lot of fun. So in June, I hope you're going to use some of that COVID money or you could find an alternate way to play this game because it is a bit of a pricey title. And that is Cannon Spike on the Dreamcast. Now, we've only played a few Dreamcast titles, so it's going to be a lot of fun to jump back into that library, Sean. Yeah, one of my favorite systems. And I have dabbled in Cannon Spike, and I remember having a lot of fun. I'm hoping, again, that the difficulty won't be a factor for me, but I'm willing to give it a shot. I know it has some interesting Capcom characters in it, and it's kind of one of those like crossover games. So I'm looking forward to playing a Dreamcast game from that era. Righto, old boy. <laughs> ah, shit. I'm turning this shit off. <laughs> Blame on me, it's all 
that will do it for another episode. Thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to all of our participants. And one more time with the utmost gratitude, we thank Marissa DeBeast for taking the time to chat with us on the concert cast. In May, we're looking at the very recently released spin-off prequel to the Darksiders franchise, Darksiders Genesis from Airship Syndicate. The game is available on Microsoft Windows, Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and of course, the Google Stadia. Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to join that playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blame